stump mm. that is starting to crack. Mm. Mm. Um, so if you have... give away X number of dollars or whatever. ...to crack. Mm, mm. Um, so if you have a... Um, I don't make widgets. I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> I don't even like widgets. <laughs> I don't <enjoy> widgets. Um, <laughs> if, if you have... Um, so I'm not sitting here. Bill Gates is sitting here. Um, he's, you know, patting himself on the back. He's been mm -hmm. patted, you know, on the back. You know, for this the pledge to give away X amount of dollars. You, you have mentioned earlier that charity is insufficient. Mm -hmm. um, that perhaps it shouldn't be, you know, uh, up to you in the first place to say, hey, I'm going to, of my own beneficence, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, give away X number of dollars or whatever. What can Billionaire Joe do right now? Right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To not, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, you know, I think to it's, not plague the world. <laughs> it's an it's an excellent. Uh, I think it's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that giving. It's this is not to say that charity is wrong, right? But also, it's important in who we give to, mm -hmm. and we have to. It's it, also not a systemic answer, right? Like and it's not a systemic answer, answer yeah. because yeah. if you're a billionaire and you want to do good, then I think what you need to do is advocate first of all change your business model mm. that's the first right. one if jeff bezos he doesn't have to be amazon if jeff yeah. bezos wants right. to be a good person he turned amazon to a walker, worker cooperative right right you know <laughs> like not what do i do with all of this money that right. i have created right. with this unjust system right. and if usually if you're a billionaire that means that you control a massive system. Mm. It means that you own oil supplies. Mm. It means that you control textiles. Mm. It means that you have a massive labor force under your control. And to be ethical, if you're a billionaire today, the thing that you need to do is give up control mm. and power. So I don't want your money as much as we want your power. Mm. The people, not me. That's going to get cut and clipped. <laughs> it's all going to get cut and clipped. It's all going to get cut and clipped. Um, but, uh, but seriously, mm. if you, we don't want to demand for a billionaire to fund this or that. What we want to demand is to change these systems, change the business model that has exploited so many people so that someone could have a billion dollars. I mean, how many people here have worked a minimum wage job or worked in hospitality or just straight up not know if they were going to make rent at the end of the month? And in the most advanced society and the most wealthy society, you know, it's not because there's a lack of resources. It's because we are dependent on a system that keeps most people um, at the 
the biting edges mm -hmm. so that someone can have a helipad, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a personal one. Yeah. yeah. You know, I wonder what... Um... All right. Uh, this is Give Them an Argument. I'm Ben Burgess. Uh, this is our first episode with the new uh, live format, uh, making a bunch of changes uh, for uh, for the new year. Uh, so I am uh, so one of those. Uh, for uh, for example, uh, is that our producer here, Forrest, uh, is uh, is going to be on air more. Uh, he'll be uh, reading off super chats at the uh, at the end of the show. Uh, and another one is that on Thursdays we're introducing uh, give them more uh, bonus episodes. The very first one of those we'll play you a little preview later. Uh, it's with uh, Gene Bajalon, uh, so that's going to be episode twenty-one, a beginner's guide to the Kurdish liberation struggle. Um, and there's a lot of other st good stuff coming up. But I wanted to play that clip that we that we just heard of Congresswoman o Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, for a couple of reasons, right? So um, one of them uh, is that in just a minute, I am going to be uh, bringing on our friend and comrade, uh, the uh, great Marxist economist uh, and popularizer of Marxism, uh, Richard Wolff. Uh, and uh, he spends a lot of time talking about worker ownership and converting businesses to uh, worker cooperatives. And I remember that when that, that interview that we just played part of happened, and uh, uh, this was almost a year ago, so that was Martin Luther King Day weekend, uh, 2020, uh, before the world turned into whatever sort of science fiction dystopia, you know, we've been, uh, we've been living in since then. Um, feels like forever ago. Yeah, no, that feels like 20 or 30 years ago. It's like that, that's, that's like I just played a clip for the Ford administration or something. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, still had a very good shot at the uh, the presidency. Um, you know, the pandemic obviously, you know, had uh, had not hit the uh, the U.S. Uh, and uh, you know, a lot of things were a lot of things were different. A lot of things, you know, not worth dwelling on right this second were different. But uh, I remember when I saw that interview, thinking, "My God, this is remarkable." We have a sitting congresswoman who's going to be. Uh, talking about capitalism this way that you know that it's 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 not that it's not just an issue about um you know unjust distribution of wealth uh some people having more income than others although you know it's certainly that right you know that, yeah. that we live in a system where as she said at the end some people have uh personal helipads and some people have trouble making rent uh but that's a symptom right the uh, that the real thing is the underlying distribution of power uh, that uh, that leads to that in the in the first place that uh, that some people own businesses and and can can decide you know workers you know sometimes are in a position to bargain especially collectively or you know people who have particular skills you know can bargain for themselves but um, but most people uh, most people have to more or less accept what they're offered uh, because they don't have the financial resources to go into business for themselves. Uh, and, and they, so they have to submit themselves to the authority of somebody who can decide, um, you know, what tasks they're doing at what time, you know, what hours for what, you know, how much of, how much of the wealth that they create, they get to keep in wages and how much goes into profits. Uh, and having a, and having a politician that, uh, you know, had, had really worked through that system was kind of mind blowing. When AOC first got elected, having someone that had been a, like a waitress and a bartender, and kind of had you know 
worked her way up. I mean, you know, she worked on political campaigns and stuff, but it was it was kind of like a like a yeah yeah it's a working class in some small yeah way. yeah I think the combination of the fact that she came from a working class background and that um, you know you could imagine you know a conventional liberal politician having that that background although you know very few do mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but the combination of that and actually having that kind of class analysis that you'd have a sitting congresswoman who'd say. That uh, if Jeff Bezos wants to be a good person, he shouldn't give his money to charity. He should turn Amazon into a worker cooperative. Yeah, is is just is mind blowing if you even remember what like 2015 was like. You mm -hmm. know, never mind anything earlier than that. Um, and so I, I and I think that uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time right now. Uh, talking about you know recent controversies that have you know torn apart the very online left uh, because I think I think a lot of people you know people who are watching this or listening to this later will have likely already heard a lot <laughs> about that uh, if you um, you know if you haven't deleted your Twitter account like you should you've, you've, you've probably heard you know several lifetimes worth about it uh, I've, but I've edited clips. I've edited clips about other clips I've edited on both sides of the, of the force of the vote debate at this point. Like, you know, I'm I'm so sick of it. Yeah, no, well that makes sense, right? Because because the uh, um, the you know the different shows that you 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 do work for that uh, that would have been uh, tearing me apart. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so obviously, I have you know. Uh, I have my take about this. I uh, did a debate about this with Marianne Cummings. The video went up over the uh, over the weekend, and you know, even before that, uh, it was on New Year's Day. The uh, the live stream where where we actually did it. I wrote an article about it for Jacobin. Um, I uh, you know I I argued with Brianna Joy Gray a little bit about it on our mutual friend Katie Halper's show. So anybody who's curious what I think, there's a it's out there and out there and out there and out there, uh, but. Uh, so I, I don't want to really sort of belabor what my critique of, you know, of some of what was being said about that was. I just want to say, and I think this is why the AOC worker cooperative clip is worth playing, that it's worth kind of taking a beat now that this is over and thinking about friends and enemies, right? Because oftentimes people talk about this in very general terms, right? Is pressure good? You know, should you think, you know... Uh, is, um, you know, like, like how should we, you know, relate to politicians, whatever, all, you know, fair enough, right? I think even the best politicians should be pressured in certain cases. We could argue about whether in any given case they're being pressured to do something that makes sense or something that doesn't make sense, uh, something that would have tactical and strategic payoff or not. Uh, but I think that it is just worth keeping that basic sense of perspective uh, about, you know, I, I think it could be as important to know who is on your side as who's on uh, on the other side. So one thing that I, I definitely do agree with the force the vote crowd about is that, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, you know, the furthest thing imaginable, you know, from, from being on our side, right? You know, if, if you have that, that old, you know, miners union song in your head, you know, which side are you on? You know, that's then, yeah. then you know, she's on the other one. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to know, you know, for strategic purposes. But I think it's also important to know who is, doesn't make them above criticism, doesn't make them above pressure, but you should know who is basically on our side because it tells you 
who you have to tear down and conversely who you should be trying to to build up because uh we're not going to achieve even medicare for all which is what we've been talking about this whole time and i I agree with the people I'm arguing with that Medicare for all should be the left's top priority right now because it's the thing that's our most popular issue. Uh, and not, a pandemic where you know healthcare is at the front, the, you know, the front seat of everything. Oh like, yeah, I mean, how many millions of people have lost their employer health insurance because of the, of the pandemic? Because we we live in a hellscape. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, so I, I, you know, but but also big picture. Um, what we're talking about there isn't, you know, turning the U.S. into a, um, you know, advanced socialist, uh, you know, uh, society. We're talking about uh, bringing us up to the level of uh, Canada, right? Yeah. Like, like Canada has had Medicare for all for for decades, uh, and so if we're going to achieve and pretty much every, I mean, every, you know, every developed country, I guess. I mean, I, I hate that phrase, but. Yeah, no, but, but but yeah, but every developed country, yeah. you know, uh, they don't they don't all have exactly that system. Uh, some of them have things that aren't quite Medicare for all. Some of them, you know, like France, uh, you know, although France also puts more money into the public healthcare than lots of countries that do have, yeah. uh, you know, that do have public monopoly healthcare. Uh, some countries like Britain actually go beyond Medicare for all. They've they, they've also nationalized the hospitals. You know, the, the government pays the doctors, which actually I think should be the next step after Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, but yeah, just about every no developed country has anything quite like what the, the, the kind of nightmarish healthcare system the United States has. Yeah. So it, it's a really important goal, but it's also a very modest goal. It's a baby step in the direction of the kind of world that we should have. And I think if we're going to achieve, uh, the kind, you know, if we're going to achieve, uh, even Medicare for all, never mind the deeper structural situation, you know, changes that we want uh, in our society, uh, then I, I think that what we need is, you know, certainly, you know, I, I don't think electoralism is going to get it done all by itself. I think you need organizing at the bottom of society. Uh, you know, crucially, you need organizing at the workplace. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that there's an electoral component, you know, the very first step would be having something like the squad, but like, you know, 20 times, 30 times, 40 times the size, you know, of, of what we of what we have now, just as a basic first step. So you could pass any kind of important social democratic reforms at all right now. And also, I mean, you know, a, a goal would be to have people way more radical than AOC, you know what I mean? Like sitting in, in those positions, but you can't get there without you know, the AOCs and the Ilhan Omars and yeah, having, having a hundred or 200 AOCs or Ilhan Omars, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't get us to at the end of capitalism, but uh, it gets us unfathomably further from the direction that we're in right now. So I think that the people, goal would be, the goal would be having like, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren or AOC as the far right of our, <laughs> yeah, that would be, yeah, that would be <laughs> ideal. Well, Elizabeth Warren is the, far right and AOC is in the center somewhere. But uh, but look, uh, so the point is that I think that people who have tactical disagreements with each other about stuff like this, who are all more radical, even than the squad, never mind any normal Democrat, uh, you know, uh, are not the enemy. Even the squad in the time and place that we're living is not remotely the enemy. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the furthest left edge of what you get in the electoral system. And, and the first step towards anything happening for the left in terms of policy is building that up. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think that if you read tactical disagreements about which, frankly, let's remember, very insidery, wonky parliamentary maneuvers 
because that's all we were arguing about. Uh, you know that uh, that you think should happen that might or might not have some payoff later in terms of primaries. If you think that disagreeing about those things puts you on the wrong side of that, which side are you on? Then I think you've lost the plot. Um, you know, be, and I and I think that that matters, right? Because I I, I think that you need to um, I think you need to know who your your enemies are. You also need to know who your friends are. And, uh, on. And, and this is not this is not a new problem for the left. This has been, you know what I mean? Like the left has historically in the US anyway, has had an extraordinarily hard time figuring out who their enemies are and who their friends are. Um, yeah, and, and also, you know, uh, and also frankly, if you look at the way that they, the ruling classes wage war against the left, if you go to like what's been declassified over the decades from, you know, the COINTELPRO program and things like that, uh, they they have uh, the powers that be have often really ruthlessly exploited that fact about us that it's so easy, you know, to to get us to to denounce each other in the further you know harshest possible terms and you know take the knives out, uh, and and I think that what we've seen here is uh, is this being uh, you know that it being self inflicted right you know who needs the FBI you know when yeah. you Twitter yeah Nan Nando said something really funny about it on weekends. Um, this weekend and he was saying you know not that not that jimmy Dore is is you know like is, is the fbi but if the fbi was plotting a way to separate the left as fast as possible and kind of get the uh, i guess the anemic two sides of it split apart like this this issue itself would be the perfect the perfect fbi plot yeah yeah absolutely if you get people accusing each other of being um you know corporate shills and being paid off by NATO and, and just insane things like this, uh, who basically agree about almost everything, right? They disagree about some parliamentary tactics, but you know, that's it. Then that's, that's a big victory for them and a big loss for us. So, um, you know, know who your enemies are, know who your friends are, something to keep in mind. But speaking of friends, uh, let's bring on our uh, good friend and comrade, uh, Richard Wolf. Hi Ben. Hi Forrest. Hey. Hi, hi Professor Wolf. It is uh, it's very good to see you again. Yeah, it is a happier time than uh, thinking about and talking about Michael. So. Yeah, yeah. Last time we saw each other uh, was for one of the um, the Michael Brooks uh, Memorial um, uh, podcast episodes, uh, and of course, I was thinking earlier today about the. Um, the last time uh, that I was interacting with you before that, which was uh, last year uh, when I, I, I went on your show and, and I took it as an opportunity to um, uh, fly to New York and, uh, and, and spend the weekend with Michael. And at the, uh, I think our, I think I was on, uh, I think I was on your show on, um, on a Monday, right? So I was, I was spending the weekend with him. And then on, on the Monday I was, I was urging him to, you know, to just, uh, uh, take the day off uh, the majority report and 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 come in with me and we could all have lunch together and you know he was you know I, I think he was he was he was wavering he was going to do it and then Sam said he wanted him to come in that day but uh, but that was a uh, that was a that was a much much better time and uh, really actually almost every way yeah absolutely Ugh. but um, so. As uh, actually, as as coincidence would have it, the uh, you know, you know, we booked this a long time ago. But yesterday, in uh, the uh, business pages of the New York Times, which I do not normally read, uh, but um, 
I this was pointed out to me, and I and I you know had a uh, had a copy and, and I read it. Uh, there was this uh, there was this article uh, about uh, a subject I've heard you talk about many times, uh, which was uh, the uh, the Mondragon Corporation uh, in uh, in Spain. Uh, so, uh, Forrest, do we have the uh, do we have the New York Times article? So, this is. Hold on. Uh, I'm, I'm getting it up. Yep. So, um, so to just to, to set people up for this, uh, could uh, who who might not? Okay, here we go. So, uh, this is the headline that the uh, the New York Times put on it: Co-ops in Spain's Basque region uh, soften capitalism's rough edges. Uh, and the uh, the way the headline actually in the uh, paper version that uh, that ran uh, yesterday uh, was uh, or anyway was uh, it was something like uh, a model for a softer capitalism. That's not actually what I think it's the that's uh, the model for. But uh, there was a uh, but the what this is about was about how the experience of the pandemic has played out in Mondragon versus. Uh, you know, regular capitalist businesses. So can you set us up here a little bit about uh, what this company is? Sure. Uh, let me start by commenting on the New York Times, whose facility and not understanding what's going on is truly impressive and, and has been honed over many years and is on full evidence in this story. I mean, if you look at the headline, you'd think it was something new that had developed uh, the, the Mondragon co-ops are started in 1956, uh, so maybe it's a reasonable time frame for the New York Times to find out about it, but the rest of the world knows a, an awful lot about it, uh, lots of attention over the years. It's a very successful um, operation. In fact, it is the single most successful worker co-op operation on the planet at this time. So you really ought to take your, your hat off to it and give it some of the credit it deserves. Let me explain briefly. In 1956, in the north of Spain, uh, Mondragon is a small city in the north of Spain in the shadow of the Pyrenees Mountains that separate uh, Spain from France. It was an extremely poor agricultural um, part of Spain. It had been decimated by years of underinvestment, underdevelopment. It had been savaged in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, I mean, it really was a desolate place of horrible, high, long-term unemployment. Let me underscore. Capitalism, lovely description, rough edge, had condemned tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in that little corner of the world, northern Spain, to a mind-bending poverty. People didn't live very long, much beyond their 40s and 50s, on and on and on and on. Wonderfully packaged as rough edges. I want to take my hat off to the New York Times. They deserve it. Okay, so there's a little priest in a little parish in Mondragon a man who came to be known as Father Arismendi. Not his full name, but that's what he was known as. And he gives a famous talk in his little parish uh, church in Mondragon, saying uh, to his parishioners, who are mostly unemployed, if we wait for some capitalist 
employer to come in here and give us a job, well, we'll all die of old age before that happens. Everybody giggles. And then he drives home his point. Let's not do that. Let's cut out the middleman, the capitalist, and let's become our own employer. That way we don't have to wait. Now to put it in modern economics languages, workers don't need an employer to get a job. They don't need an employer to, to use American language, give you a job. Gift like that, you don't need enemies. What you can do is be your own boss. It's a much better deal. And that's what the priest said, let's do it. And with six workers, six workers, he started a worker co-op. Okay, I could give you lots more details, but let's go fast forward to right now. Mm. This worker co-op, which by the way, and it's a little footnote, but for those that are interested in history, because it was begun under the auspices of a Roman Catholic priest, and because Spain is a Roman Catholic country, there was a peculiar protection, you might say, given to this idea, because instead of it being immediately squashed as socialism, communism, or something like that, it was the church. And because it was the church, even a government as right-wing as Francisco Franco, who was the power, the dictator in Spain at this time, wouldn't touch it, couldn't touch it. It was within the church. By the way, worker co-ops are a very old institution in the Roman Catholic Church. If you go look at many of the monasteries and nunneries that have existed in that institution for many centuries, many of them operated as worker co-ops. Um, so in fact, the relationship between worker co-op and the Roman Catholic Church is another thing that I guess in 20 years, the New York Times will discover that too. But we won't wait, I've just let you in on it. We've scooped the New York Times, which believe me, is a very low bar. Okay, so let's take it the next step, right to the present. Uh, the, the, the success of these worker co-ops was so enormous that the total number of people within what has now come to be called the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation. And for any uh, viewers, listeners, you can go and Google it and you can find out more than you need uh, about the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, including filling out this history and lots of details. In any case, they now encompass more than 100,000 workers, the majority of whom are organized in a couple of hundred worker co-ops. Think of it as a little bit of a holding company, an umbrella corporation that includes a large number of worker co-ops in manufacturing, in agriculture, in services, spanning the entire range of economic activity. In their success, I wanna drive this home. In their success, they have done a number of things. They started their own bank to solve the problem of credit 
and of providing liquidity so that new co-ops would have a place to go to get the startup capital they might need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's called the Kaya Laboral, and you can learn all about it, how they set up their own bank. Across the, the, the 70 odd years that they've been in existence, they have had to compete in the Mondragon area, in the whole of Spain, in all of Europe, in the whole world. They, their products are now exported everywhere. They had to compete, of course, with capitalist enterprises. Enterprises organized not with the one person, one vote, democratic organization of a worker co-op, which is, by the way, not necessarily owned by the workers. That's really secondary. It's run by the workers. It's what AOC referred to in the remark to Be Jeff Bezos, we want your power. We want to organize and run the business. Ownership could be dispersed, but the running of it, that's got to be the workers in a kind of a prime position here, not separated from a, a hierarchy with a tiny number of people at the top who make all the key decisions. Anyway, they had to compete with capitalist enterprises. And in that competition, and this is so important, particularly for Americans, in that competition, let me stress it now, the worker co-op won and the capitalist enterprise lost. So if you're worried that worker co-ops cannot outproduce, cannot outperform productivity-wise, cannot become more efficient, let me relax you. Don't worry. We have a real live experience. And by the way, it's not the only one, but we have a real live experience. Indeed, a good number of the businesses that weren't as efficient as Mondragon were in fact competed out of business and their business and their workers were then absorbed into Mondragon, uh, sort of the final step in that competition. Along the way, they developed their own university. I've been to Mondragon. They run their own courses. They have developed courses that show you how to start a co-op, how to finance a co-op, how to manage the personnel's conflicts that develop in a co-op that are not like the hierarchical uh, military, quasi-military organization of capitalist enterprises. Uh, so all of that has been worked out. You can find an immediate curriculum, a syllabus, where you can answer all of the questions. There's no mystery about worker co-ops. There doesn't have to be any utopian notion that this is a lovely idea for some distant future. Not at all. Right here, right available. Of course, the New York Times wasn't aware and didn't carry very many stories until now because it has something to do, I guess, for them with pandemic. But you don't need the pandemic. This story has been there a long time. They also have their own, last point, because I think Americans will find it interesting. They've developed their own laboratories. They do a lot of research and development to develop either new products or new technologies for existing products. And they're very advanced. They made some of the really important breakthroughs, for example, in the electric vehicle area. And it has led American corporations 
to pay them to allow American companies, uh, technical specialists, to work in the labs of the Mondragon Corporation in order to get tips from their advanced technology. And I thought I'd mention the names of two of the American companies that were leaders in, uh, how shall I say it politely, sharing the advanced technology of Mondragon, General Motors and Microsoft. Hello, uh, what's going on here? It, they didn't come to the US to pick up technological tips. It went the other way. Bottom line, it's a real alternative. This is not, by the way, doing something to soften capitalism's edge. This is an alternative to capitalism. The core of capitalism always was the employer-employee relationship. A tiny group of people, a very small minority, runs every capitalist enterprise. The owner, the one who started it, or the major shareholders, or the board of directors that they elect. Tiny, 1%, 2%, if that, of all the people involved in every enterprise. The vast majority are excluded by tradition, by culture, and by law from participating in deciding what the enterprise produces it, what technology it uses, where the production occurs, and what is done with the profits that everybody helped to produce. Those key decisions are monopolized by a tiny minority, utterly unaccountable to everybody else. There's nothing remotely democratic about a capitalist enterprise, and there never was, which does leave you with a little footnote. The description of the United States as a democratic society leads me to say, Hello, are you kidding? Where do most adults spend most of their lives? At work. Five out of the seven days, the best hours of those five days, you're at work. Or you're getting ready to go to work, or you're recovering from work. It's all about work. If you were a democratic society, the first place you would have instituted democracy is in the workplace. We never did that in the United States, not ever. We organized an economic system which immediately put a very few people in a fundamentally anti-democratic position of unaccountable power, which is why I was taken by that clip of AOC with which you began, because you're exactly right as, as she was in putting her finger on that point. It's a very powerful point, and it, it helps to make it clear, I think, that the whole issue of what Mondragon represents and the many other examples like Mondragon, which I'd be happy to talk about, that represent a desire to break from capitalism. And if I could say one last thing, mm -hmm. you know, slavery feudalism, those are the great systems before capitalism. Not the only ones, but the great ones. The core of slavery, we know what that was. It was the master-slave relationship. 
The master gave the orders, the slave did the work, and the fruits of the labor of the slave belonged to the master like the slave himself or herself did. And we know if we go to feudalism, the core relationship was the lord and the serf. The core relationship of capitalism is the employer and the employee. But the whole hope of the human race to break out of a condition in which a tiny number of people dominate the vast majority, masters over slaves, lords over serfs, employers over employees, that horrible long history comes to an end when you do away with that division, when you say that the workers who do the work will be their own masters, lords, employers. Then you've finally broken and you've done something radically different. That key understanding is 100% absent in the New York Times. It doesn't have a clue. Yeah. Uh, do you know? Uh, do you know the story, by the way, about uh, Noam Chomsky's dentist? Have you heard this? No, but you know, uh, you were followed today. We taped our program for next week, and we interviewed not Ben Burgess today, but Noam Chomsky. Believe it or not. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So actually, here let me uh, let me just uh, play it for you real quick. So this is a. Uh, old clip of uh, Christopher Hitchens back when he was a leftist uh, telling uh, telling the story about uh, about Noam Chomsky. There's a wonderful story about Noam. He went to the dentist one day. It's true. And the dentist said, you're grinding your teeth. And he said, no, I'm not as far as I know. He said, no, a lot of my patients say that. You're probably grinding them when you're asleep. And his wife sort of monitored him around the club and he wasn't doing it. Went asleep and they monitored him more closely and they found he was only grinding his teeth in the morning when he was reading the New York Times. <laughs> Good story. I had not heard that. Yeah. So, uh, so the the way that the uh, that the New York Times presented this story, uh, you know, I mean, obviously that's an absurd headline about uh, softening the uh, softening the rough edges of uh, of capitalism, uh, for all the reasons that you uh, that you pointed out. Uh, but the uh, but the content of the story is interesting because because uh, what they uh, what they say is that uh, during the pandemic uh, that and they're talking about the Areca group. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's a that's a part of uh, of the Mondragon uh, Federation. Uh, that um, you know that they in late March the Spanish government uh, ordered uh, the company to shut down three of its local factories. Uh, for you know, COVID safety reasons, uh, and you know, and this would uh, in a regular company, this this would be a, um, you know, this would be a big problem because most likely the solution to that would be uh, would be massive layoffs, uh, as uh, as it was in uh, in many other places. Uh, but um, say it uh, averted that uh, it continued to pay uh, workers stuck at home. Uh, you know, at ninety-five percent of what they'd be making otherwise, and you know, they had to bank some hours to, uh, you know, to to pay back, you know, later on when uh, when things got going again. Uh, but uh, of course, the uh, the reason for this is that the relationship between workers, you know, the reason that things played out so differently with the pandemic, and I, th I think this, I think this is really worth thinking about the 
the contrast uh, between that and what's happened, you know, at most companies, and and certainly uh, certainly in uh, in this country, which, as you point out, is not only you know not extended uh, democracy to work in any way, but I mean we have some of the most anti-union labor laws in the first world. So uh, you know it's you know we we prohibit sympathy strikes. You know there are all these things that we do to stop people uh, from organizing uh, in in the workplace. Uh, and so, of course, if uh, if the workers, uh, you know, don't actually have any control over the company's decision making, then uh, then the obvious response to, OK, we don't need people doing this particular job right now uh, is to have, um, you know, is is to just let go a bunch of the people that you don't need. And, you know, maybe you'll get your job back, you know, in, in months, you know, when this is all over, if you're very lucky. Uh, but at Mondragon, it plays out differently because because uh, the workers uh, own and control uh, the company, and I think some people might not like have a good sense of, of of what that looks like, you know, because they they might just sort of imagine, okay, like, or, or what are we what are we talking about here? That you know, this is like an eternal mass meeting. Everybody's you know, everybody's making every decision by you know by committee every time. So I mean, just just in a nuts and bolts sense, like, how does this actually work? Like on a uh, on a day to day level. Okay, you will forgive me if I knock the New York Times just once or twice. Uh, they do deserve it. Uh, <laughs> there is absolutely nothing new, nothing novel about uh, what has happened in that in Mondragon in response to the pandemic. I'll give you just one example. They were also affected, Mondragon, because it is so successful. By the way, it's the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. We're talking about a mammothly successful mega business in, in that country. Uh, they were affected by the crash of 2008. You know, this capitalism with its rough edges, it has a crash every four to seven years. It's That's a pretty rough edge. Yeah, pretty rough edge, you know. If you live with a person as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out generations ago. But in any case, we've had three in 20 years. The uh, so-called dot-com crisis in early 2000, the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, and now the COVID-19 crisis. Notice the capitalism that has a crisis every four to seven years and has had that everywhere for 300 years, manages each time to associate the crisis with some other event, some special event in the environment so that people should please not think that it's built into capitalism, which it obviously is. So we give it names like a dot-com, as if the high price of dot-coms back then was something special. It wasn't. Or as if failed mortgages make crises. They usually don't. Or if the pandemics, we, the last big pandemic we had in this country was in 1918. There was no depression in 1918. There's nothing about the two that make them go together. It's capitalism's worst nightmare that its intrinsic instability coexists in the same time and space with an illness that they can't cope with. Uh, and that's why we're living through one of these worst nightmares. In any case, when the crash happened in 2008, one of the big businesses affected was a manufacturing uh, co-op, worker co-op within Mondragon. Uh, the name is Fagor, F-A-G-O-R. They produce uh, washing machines, dishwashers, big uh, home appliances, and very successful, uh, exported all over the world. 
And so they suddenly saw their, their market collapse as people didn't buy new homes, they couldn't replace old washing machines the way they once could. And so what happened? Well, in a capitalist country, as you rightly notice, the capitalist immediately, if he can't sell what's being produced, fires the workers, which means that the workers absorb the full brunt of what happens. Not only that, but the capitalist gets to decide which workers. He doesn't necessarily fire all of them. He picks which ones he fires. Very clever, because by firing half of them, you terrify the other half, and you can now do things to the other half because they're worried that they will be. None of that was done. The way it was handled was very simple. Meetings were convened of all the workers at Fagor. I believe, if I remember, about 2,000 workers. And in those meetings, they were everything was explained. This is what has happened to the demand for the machines we produce. It's it's you know thirty percent less than we expected. Okay, uh, here's how we're going to accommodate that. But part of it has to be accommodated with uh, fewer materials we have to buy. That's a good thing. We'll do that. But we're going to have to accommodate with labor. And here's how we can do it. We can lay some people off. If we do that, well, we're a co-op, so we're going to prioritize finding them work in one of the other co-ops that are part of this corporation. It's one of the benefits of being within a large entity, and they did that. That was one option. Here's the second option, that we don't make some workers suffer the full brunt we all reduce our hour. In other words, if we need 20% fewer workers, that's not what we'll do. Everybody will work 20% less hours. So it'll be all of us sharing the burden of getting through this hard time, not dumping it on some to terrify the other. We're not going to do that. We're not going to treat people that way. We're not going to horribly hurt those that are designated to be full-time unemployed people, all of the kinds of options that a rational community confronted with a problem would try to work out. Nothing like that happens. In a capitalist corporation, the few people at the top, privately, away from the mass of workers, make the decision how to handle a crisis that's best for them and everybody else lives with the results of those decisions, no matter how terrible they are. And that's the basic idea behind worker co-ops altogether. All of the basic decisions are presented for public debate, public information, and then a democratic decision to choose among the alternatives about how to handle it. And there always are alternatives, only in capitalism. Will the boss come into the big assembly room and tell you what had to be done as if the thing they decided to do was the only thing one could do? If you're six years old, maybe you should fall for that. But if you're an adult, you don't have any excuse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that they, I mean, certainly if you have... Um, I mean, like it's it's like just just as a just as a math problem. Like it sounds so obvious. Okay, you know, we we have you know this this much less you know money coming in now. You know, because of whatever the shock is, you know, we could you know 
we could let go five people. We could all, you know, work at 95%, you know, we could spend. So, you know, like there are all the, all of these, all of these options. And of course, some of them like uh, retraining people to, uh, to work at affiliated businesses. If those businesses are owned by one person, you know, that's not going to be in that person's interest, but, uh, but it might be very much uh, in the interests of, uh, of of everybody who works there to set the precedent that this is what happens, you know. So they they have the they have the security uh, going forward uh, that they that they think that that's what's going to happen to them, uh, and and I think it's it's been like I mean it's it's almost so obvious it's not worth you know not worth belaboring, but um, but the way that the uh, that the pandemic has played out this time uh, in. Um, you know, especially, you know, especially in the United States uh, is I, I reflects a nightmarish level to which uh, the interests of working class people are not taken into account by decision makers, both within businesses and uh, and politically uh, that, you know, I, I mean, you know, I'm, of course, like this Tyson Foods where the uh, the managers were literally uh, taking bets uh, about how many people, uh, how many how many of the workers in the factory with uh, inadequate PPE would uh, would would get sick and and would die of uh, of the coronavirus. That's that's a, you know, that's a thing that came out and and even you know and even the focus on that you know almost you know, almost obscures like okay that's a particularly grotesque manifestation, but the general idea that the uh, that the health and safety of workers. Uh, that there's just no structural incentive for the people who own companies to take that into consideration has been shown in a particularly grisly way by the pandemic. There's another point here that could be drawn up. One of Marx's, Karl Marx's uh, useful insights is something that he called uneven development, that the way industry works, particularly in capitalism, but even outside of capitalism, is there's a constant shifting around of what industries are growing and what industries are shrinking. You know, we change our tastes. We want to wear sneakers and not shoes. And that makes the demand for rubber and cloth go up and the demand for leather go down. Or the technology economizes on something that we don't need as much as we did before. Well, when you have a big corporation like Mondragon, a collection of, of worker co-ops, what they have worked out is that at any given time, there will be those parts of the co-op that are shrinking, that need fewer workers, and those parts that are growing that need more. And that they will, as a service to their entire membership, move people from the one to the other, making sure there's no interruption in their incomes, therefore their access to housing, therefore the, the security of their families. And they have also worked out a very interesting system I think Americans will be interested in. It's a numerical system. You get a certain number of points for a whole variety of qualities that you have. Uh, for example, if you've had more education, you get a few more points. If you've had more experience at a particular activity, you get some more points. If you have more children at home than other people, you get more points. If you have an illness that has to be accommodated. And so when there's a crisis, the people with the most points are the ones who get kind of their first choice. Uh, if someone has to move, but you don't want to because it really will be disruptive and you have the most points, 
you don't, you're not the one who moves. You move down the points to people who have less constraints on them. Maybe they're younger. Maybe they have other skills. Uh, and so people have choices based on a whole comprehensive assessment of who they are, right down to their individuality. Think of it. Um, a system that respects your individuality, just what Americans insist they have and have never had. This system builds that in, and that's one of the reasons it has been as successful and as strong uh, in Spain for 75 years uh, as it has been. And by the way, there's another example that may interest people. In and around the city of Bologna in northern Italy, uh, there's a province, a regional area called Emilia-Romagna. It's a marvelous example because in that area, 40% of all businesses are worker co-ops. It's been that way for decades. And it shows you how a, an area could decide, which they have, to have a mixed system. It's not capitalist alone. It's not worker co-op alone. It's a combination that is constantly revisited because people may decide to go more one way or the other, but it demonstrates that there is no intrinsic difficulty in having a system that gives people a remarkable freedom of choice. A young person in Emilia-Romagna, Italy, can make the decision as he or she goes through school, I want to prepare myself to work in a worker co-op. I want to be in a democratically organized workspace versus another person who says, no, I don't want that. I want to be able to go into a hierarchical system where I can rise to the top and do to others what was done to me. Okay, that choice, where to go, how to live, Americans don't have that choice. They are without a choice. They are denied a choice. And yeah, and, 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 and how did they achieve? Uh, how did they achieve that that uh, that choice? I mean, what were the what were the laws that uh, that helped uh, bring that about? Well, again, I go back to your very wise choice of that clip from AOC. They have Italy has a long, deeply rooted, century old tradition of socialism and communism. And among the socialists and communists and the trade unionists, there were always people for whom the worker co-op was the ultimate. What is better than workers having a strong union to bargain with the employer? You know what's better? No employer, be your own. Then you get a much better deal when you're talking to yourself than if you're talking to an adversary. So for those socialists, they have pushed. So for example, in Italy, there's a law, was passed in 1985, still on the books in Italy. It's called the Marcora Law, after the name of the Italian legislator who pushed it through. Here's what it does. And by the way, nothing like this exists in the United States, where the vast majority of our politicians do not know what I'm about to tell you. Under the law in Italy, here's how it works. If you lose your job through no fault of your own, you have two choices. You can go on what they call there the dole, uh, what we call unemployment. You get a check every week 
for a year or so to see you through your unemployment. That's like what we have here in the United States. But in Italy, you have a plan B, a choice, your choice. If you can get nine or more other unemployed people like yourself to get together with you, you can go to the government and the government offers you the following. The government will give you the full year's unemployment weekly payments right now in a lump sum. You and the other nine or more that do this with you on one condition. You use that capital that you've been given by the government to start a worker co-op business. That way, The government thinks we're not giving you more money than we would have given you anyway. But we are saving you a year of idleness, a year of feeling bad about yourself because you have no job, a year of, you know, loss of connection to your skill, to your employer, to your fellow workers. We keep you in the game. Not only that, but by having this be a business that's yours, you're going to give yourself more to it, to making it successful than you otherwise would have. It'll give you a project. It'll give output to the community. It'll give a viable business. And that's one of the reasons Italy has way more worker co-ops than most other countries in Europe. Could that be done in the United States? Absolutely. Have the Democratic Party debated this subject? Not once. Do the majority of Democrats know about it? Not at all. I have given testimony to half a dozen of them who are friendly because they would ask me, and they all admitted, not that it was a surprise, they never heard about this. No one ever told them about this big secret. To my knowledge, the New York Times doesn't know yet. Maybe they'll have a story about the Marcora Law, and they'll deftly omit that it was passed in 1985, and they still haven't written about it. Yeah, so uh, so that's that's one example of, uh, of what could be done to promote a, uh, a worker co-op sector. Uh, another one uh, that I know uh, that, uh, that that I've, I've heard you mention before is something uh, that was uh, proposed when Jeremy Corbyn was the uh, the head of the uh, the Labour Party uh, in the UK. Yeah, that's a wonderful story and very applicable to the United States. Uh, the person who really developed it most was his his sidekick over there, John McDonald. Uh, and if you're at all interested, look him up. A very important right-hand man to Jeremy Corbyn uh, and developed this. Here was their plan. Had they been elected at the last election, instead of, uh, I can hardly say the words, Boris Johnson comes to my lips with about the same enjoyment as Donald Trump. Um, any case, had they won the election, here's what they were pledged to do. They would immediately pass a law. And this law would give workers in every industry, in every enterprise in, in, in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, what is called the right of first refusal. Here's what it means. If the business continues the way it is now, it can. This is not the abolition of the capitalist system. But if any existing business were to choose either to close and shut down or to sell itself to another corporation or to leave England and move somewhere else, 
or go public and have a you know an initial public offering of shares. If any corporation planned to do that, it would be free to do that subject, and here comes the law, it would have to give the workers the right of first refusal. It would have to offer to sell the business to the workers in the business before, if the workers refused, then they could go ahead and do any of those other things, but they could not do it without giving the workers the right of first refusal. And when they first made this, the snarky conservatives quickly shot back, what an empty game. Uh, the workers don't have any money. They can't buy these businesses. And McDonald, waiting for them because he laid the trap so prettily, said to them, oh, no, no, there's no problem. The workers will get the money. How the conservatives howl. The government will lend it to them at a very low interest. In other words, the Labor Party was committed to financing and organizing with this law and those loans a worker co-op sector of the British economy. To do in the United Kingdom what had already been done in Emilia-Romagna in Italy. And the rationale would be to say to the British people, you will now see what worker co-op enterprises are like. You'll be able to work in them. You'll be able to shop from them. You'll be able to observe them. Every family will have, you know, a cousin or an uncle or an aunt who will tell the stories of what goes on there to distinguish it from what they're used to. We will offer the British working class a real choice about the future of their society when it comes to the work that absorbs the bulk of their adult life. That's freedom, which the British don't have and which the Americans can't even imagine. Uh, that is very, very well said. Uh, Forrest, uh, you want to uh, come on? I know Professor Wolf uh, has to run at nine, uh, so I just want to get in a few questions that uh, viewers have asked in Super Chats. Yeah. Um, hold on. All right. So um, how do we prevent new co-ops during our present integrium from degenerating into exploitative conventional enterprises? No guarantees. If you're looking for guarantees, <laughs> you come to the wrong place. Every economic system that the world has ever seen has had to struggle to survive. It has had uh, pressures and forces that undermine it. Look, I am one of those that is critical of capitalism. If capitalism vanishes, I'm going to be waving goodbye, no tears at all. Capitalism is right now going through really tough times. It has just failed in the United States, arguably the most important and biggest capitalist country. It failed to be prepared for a pandemic, and it failed to contain a pandemic, and it is now busily failing to roll out a, va a vaccination program. I mean, you can pretend that all of this is about a disease, but it isn't. This is a failure of a system to deal with a problem it knew was always lurking, it knew would one day come. Let's remember, in 1918, that, that flu killed 700,000 Americans. We're only halfway there. We know what this is like. There is no excuse 
for having been unprepared. And there is no excuse for the richest country or one of them in the world to have 350,000 people dead. And to blame this on Trump is to misunderstand all of the conditions that had to be necessary for so colossal a failure. So I don't think capitalism is guaranteed by anything. I think it has been worrisome for the people who run it for all of its history. They were always worried it could slip from their fingers because they could see that the feudals who sat at the top of the world lost it. And the slave masters who sat at the top of their worlds lost them. There's no guarantees. And there wouldn't be one in a worker co-op system either. There would be struggles in worker co-ops. There would be tendencies to go backwards or to go in directions that we would have to fight over. Otherwise, if you don't see that, then, then you become, and I hope I don't offend anyone, then you become religious. Uh, then, then there is an end. Then there is heaven and then you're done, and then you'll last forever, and it'll always be there, and God will make sure it never changes. Uh, um, it'd be lovely if that were the case. I, I don't find the evidence for that compelling. I think you will have a different set of struggles in a worker co-op economy than you have in a capitalist economy. But you know, as the French say, Viva la, those other struggles. I'd much rather be in the struggles of a democratic worker co-op than to be in the struggles of the capitalist enterprises that I have been in struggle with all my life. You know, it's a little bit like the naive person who, who's unhappy that he or she is single and wants to hook up with somebody. And so imagines that the person they're attracted to is the ultimate wonderful... You know, that person's heading for real disappointment. You have one set of problems if you're single. You have another set of problems if you're married or if you're, you know, connected to somebody. But that doesn't mean you can't really prefer one set of problems to the other. And that's my view. Capitalism has had its run. It's had its 300 years. It's producing a level of inequality and instability and injustice that says to me, we're done. It's over. We can do better uh, than this. We should have done it before. And I want to remind everybody, I don't mean to scare anyone, but then again, who knows? One of the things that ended feudalism was happened in the 14th century. It's called the Black Death, the bubonic plague. It wiped out roughly a third of Europe. It destroyed countless feudal manners because all the serfs got sick and died. The system never recovered. You quickly had the Renaissance, the Reformation, and ultimately the French, American, and other revolutions. Feudalism had weakened and became vulnerable to a disease, and it could not recover. I really wonder whether we are not at a comparable moment for capitalism. Nice. Okay. Or um, so the next one is, is there any literature uh, that someone can read about Spanish and Italian co-ops? Loads of it. Again, just use your, 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 you know, your search engines, your internet search engines. There are dozens of books about Mondragon, dozens of articles, popular ones, scholarly ones. It's a little less about the Emilia Romagna, but they do a very good job there. There's a whole bunch of professors, 
uh, in that area of Italy that study the worker co-ops that keep a literature going. And I don't mind mentioning, there is a wonderful professor, a business school professor uh, at the University of Leeds in Great Britain, uh, the business school at the University of Leeds. Uh, it's a woman named Virginie Perrotin, P-E-R-O-T-I-N. She's a professor, a tenured professor of business, and she studies worker co-ops around the world, comparing their productive efficiency, their profitability, their durability to, with similarly uh, similar industries, similar enterprises, except that those that she compares them to are organized capitalistically with a board of directors and all the rest. Because she wanted to answer the question, is one of these more efficient than the other? Is one of these more likely to last longer than the other? And she's done that research. She's published that research. Uh, and you will not be surprised, given who you're hearing this from, that her discussion shows us that the efficiency of the worker co-op exceeds that of the capitalist enterprise. And I don't think anyone really is surprised. Because if all the workers feel it's their own, they're going to take better care. When they leave at the end of the day and the, the bathroom light is on, they'll stop and flick it off because it's theirs. It's not the bosses who's been screwing them all day. And you put all that together and there's a different feeling, a different attitude, and that turns out to be the engine of the superiority of worker co-ops. And as that is appreciated through the work of people like Virginie Perrotin, you're going to see more and more, even the New York Times will cover this story. All right. Um, is there a worker co-op job board in the U.S.? Is there a, I'm sorry. A worker co-op job board in the U.S.? Uh, the closest thing to it is there's a, a, a professional association. It's the United States, uh, United States Federation of Worker Co-ops. USFWC, US Federation of Worker Co-ops. They are the central association of the hundreds of worker co-ops that exist in the United States, or thousands of them. Uh, many of them are associated with this uh, US Federation. That's where you go. They will hook you into all the information, the schools, the workshops, everything that has to do with worker co-ops here in the United States. You do not have to go uh, overseas. We have them here uh, in the United States. And there is this book, thank you very much. Um, there is this book where I try to explain what the case is uh, for all of this. Uh, you muted first. So there was a there was a question that was that was basically like, um, why wait for a socialist government in the future? Why not start more uh, worker co-ops under capitalism, which I think has been pretty addressed. Yeah, this yeah. I agree with them. And that has happened, whether we agree with it or not, that is in fact happening. More and more young people, you know, impressed, for example, by your clip from AOC. I mean, that idea there, she says it nicely. Now let's see, people are beginning to do that. Young people particularly are beginning to say, I don't want to work as a numberless person in some cubicle of some big corporation 
whose decisions I hear about when there's nothing I can do about. I want to be part of something where I have an input. I have some some respect as a part of this story. And I think you're seeing more and more young people. You know, and for me, I'm watching, in my own judgment, I'm watching capitalism disintegrate. I'm watching capitalism unable to provide decent jobs, unable to provide decent income, loading people in your generation, unlike mine, with the levels of debt they cannot possibly carry. I mean, capitalism is screwing over millions and millions of people. That's, that's the biggest organizer for me. It's not me. It's the system that is undermining itself. And for those who read some Marx, one of the things he was famous for was saying that capitalism digs its own grave. All right. Um, another question is, do co-ops have a reduced labor demand? The answer is yes and no. Obviously, when they're growing, they, they hire people, and so that happens. But their job is not to maximize profit. This is the hard thing often for Americans to understand. There is nothing that ought to make you be monomaniacal. The idea that what a corporation where large numbers of people spend the best hours of their lives, five days a week, the best hours, we won't through it, go through it all again. The idea that this thing where all these different people come together to pour out their brains and their muscles and their body and their mind should have one objective, one measurement of what's successful, namely profit, strikes me as nuts. That's a kind of narrow-minded fundamentalism. No, your job should have as one of its goals to develop you as a person, your skills, your dreams, your hopes. In order to develop your body, it should make you healthy. It should improve your health. It should be a community resource that makes the community. that. And those things are objective gains just as important as the profit of the enterprise. And I think if you had a democratic work, worker-operated enterprise, people would figure this out on their own. They would be told, for example, if you get that new machine, uh, it'll make your profit go up by 5%. No question. But it will also spew crap in the water. It'll spew crap in the air. That's not good for your babies. That's not good for your neighbors. Uh, you know, you got to... And everybody will go, yeah, that's right. We will spend more money getting the health, going to the doctor to compensate for the bad pollution than the extra profit. Wait a minute. We have, here we go, multiple different objectives. And when you do, there has to be some choices made. And either those choices are made democratically in a worker co-op or they are made at the top. And if they're made at the top by a tiny number of people, they'll always pick the machine that makes us more profit because they can always live 40 miles away in a gated community with special fans that keep the filthy air that they make filthy away from their lungs. These are the realities of the ways in which worker co-ops are going to get us a better society. And in the end, that is capitalism burial song.
Yeah, I so so I I do want to uh, I do want to just cut in here and say um, that uh, actually I saw there was one that that uh, that just came up about the uh, Evergreen Co-op project in, in Ohio. I don't I'm not uh, I'm not familiar with that, but maybe you are. Sure. Uh, very briefly, um, there's a good bit of literature on that. Uh, Ohio State University is involved in that. Uh, there's a person who writes about it and who speaks about it named Gar Alperovitz. You may know him. Uh, he's the kind of person you might want to reach out to, and he can provide you with all the information. The idea there was to get what they call an anchor institution, to go to a place in every city that is the big employer, the big entity, like a hospital or a university, where you can convince people, look, would you please, I'll give you the example from Evergreen, would you please uh, give your business, say laundering, everything that goes in and out of a hospital or everything that goes in and out of a university, they have a lot of cleaning to do, give it to a worker co-op. It's particularly been focused on people who are poor, who are disadvantaged, who are heavily unemployed, to create businesses which would be sustained because they have, if you like, a sympathetic buyer for whatever they produce that will get them the, the momentum, to get them those early years of survival to get the business going. Uh, and so th that's their strategy, to build it around these anchor institutions. And they've done that um, in the Cleveland, Chicago, in that part of the country, around the Ohio University. And Gar Alperovitz, who's actually a professor uh, at the University of Maryland, but he has been uh, the advisor of the people in the Midwest that have done this. Another example is a group of a very successful group of bakeries in, Cal in Northern California, in the Bay Area and north of the Bay Area. One is called the Alvarado Street Bakery, and the other one is called Arismendi, after that priest in Spain, Arismendi Bakeries. They've been very successful, have existed for decades in that part of the country, very successful worker co-ops. So they're scattered all over. And they're also, by the way, if I had time, they're part of American history. If you know the Shaker community, the people who make that wonderful uh, furniture, uh, a Protestant, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, very specialized religious group goes back to the colonial times in the United States. They still have a place you can visit and see how they work up in the Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, they were a worker co-op. That's how they organized it. Very interesting for those of you that are interested because there it's combined with feminism. Because the, the, the Shakers were called that because they prohibited sexual intercourse. They were against it. That was their interpretation of Christianity made that a no-no. And so when they had their services on Sunday, they shook. Uh, to relieve themselves, I don't want to be disrespectful here, of whatever it was that they were not getting from their prohibition of sex. But it might have made them, of course, disappear over time, since if you don't do the sex, you don't get the children. So here's how they solved the problem. They became the first battered women's shelter. Any colonial woman in, the, in New England who was having a problem with her husband could arrive at the Shaker villages with or without children, 
explain what they were running away from, they would be taken in, their children would be taken in, they would be given a place to sleep and live, they would be given food, and they would be integrated into the worker co-ops that kept these institutions going. And they exist to this day. So, I mean, there's nothing foreign, weird, utopian, or anything else. It's a question of whether Americans are sick and tired enough of capitalism to begin seriously to look at these alternatives. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, and I want to respect your time. I know that you need to run, but um, but this was uh, this was really good. Uh, it was it was. I'm really happy that you're on. You know, I always appreciate. You know, it can sound very abstract uh, when uh, when when you know leftists start talking about oh we can you know we can move beyond capitalism. We can have workers control the means of production. You know, it it can sound very jargon heavy. People often have times have a hard time imagining what that would be look like. And I always really appreciate the way that you managed to um, you know to to make this. Uh, to make this graspable, to, to to make it sound like we, we could have this this different world, and you know maybe we we could have, you know uh, that that wouldn't be the end of of, uh, of of political struggle. You'd have a different set of problems, as you say, but it would it would it would be uh, a you know but like given the the kind of nightmarish you know inequality and exploitation and you know environmental degradation that we have now. Uh, it would be an amazing step forward. So I, I really appreciate that about you, and 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 just personally, you know, I mean, I I know. Uh, you know, like Michael, you know, was always talking about you. He loved you. So um, it's uh, so I, I really, um, I really appreciate your time. I'm, you're going to have to come back very soon. Absolutely. And, and I want to say really from the bottom of my heart that one of the things that's changing this country um, really fast is programs like yours, like Michael's, that all of us in our little ways are reaching into new audiences who respond, who take it and talk to their friends and their relatives. That's how this happens. The disintegration of this system, coupled with the spread of people talking about ways out, ways forward, that's a dynamite combination. And the don't be fooled by the glib assurance of the people at the top that everything is under control. It isn't. And if Mr. Trump has showed us anything, He's showing us a system that is more and more desperate. It's not just him. He's always been a symptom. Only now that symptom is coming to the fore, and that ought to scare people to death. Thank you very much, Ben, and thank you, Forrest. And by all means, let's do it again. I'm more than willing. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Wolf. Take care. All right, uh, that uh, that was uh, Professor Richard Wolf, uh, who is uh, the uh, host of Economic Update, uh, which uh, which I listen to, is the author of this book, uh, Democracy at Work: uh, Cure for Capitalism. I should uh, and several others, so you should check out uh, all of his stuff. Um, and uh, and 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 yeah, I mean, as as I you know, as we were saying, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, and actually, I should say before we go on that I know there are super chat questions we did not get to, you know, in the uh, in the limited amount of time we had there, uh, both those and any others that get asked, you know, before uh, before the end, we'll we'll read off an answer, you know, at the end of the show uh, after Griscom, uh, but uh, but there are uh, there are a couple of other things. 
that uh, that I want to do first. Um, so uh, the I guess uh, the uh, the very first one is I want to show you guys just a few minutes. So uh, one of the things along with the new uh, format uh, that we're doing in the new year is uh, that instead of having the you know way that we did it before where there's one episode a week and you know and it was recorded over the weekend and patrons had early access and then everybody else got it on monday we're doing this live on monday but we are also doing these give them more bonus episodes for uh, for patrons uh which are going to be out on thursdays uh the uh the very first uh one of those uh is uh is going to be uh with um uh a uh so it's going to be, you know, give them an argument, episode 21, uh, a, a beginner's guide to the Kurdish liberation struggle uh, with uh, with our friend and comrade Jean Bajalan. Uh, so here is just a uh, just a few minutes uh, of uh, of that to uh, to give you a sense of the conversation. Well, I mean, basically, at the elite level, you have it, uh, you know, beginning in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you see the first wave of Kurdish political uh, activism coming into the fore uh, following the 1908 constitutional revolution in the Ottoman Empire, which, which gave a lot of opportunity for peoples in the Middle East to openly, you know, discuss national issues. Doesn't mean they were separatists, you know, there was a, you know, most Muslim minorities in the Ottoman Empire, for example, regarded themselves as nations, but saw their futures as being tied together within a kind of constitutional, supranational, multinational polity, not too dissimilar from tendencies within the Austro-Hungarian Empire or tendencies within the Russian Empire at that point. Now, after the end of the First World War, of course, the re Middle East got partitioned into explicit nation states. The Ottoman Empire was, you know, an empire, uh, it was, you know, uh, it, it, there was an attempt to forge a kind of uh, Ottoman national identity. Uh, but, you know, that had some success, more success than people give it credit for. But once the empire collapsed, you have the formation of new uh, identities. Uh, you have and you have explicit Arab nation states and you have explicit Ottoman nation states. But at the same time, you also have the Arabs being partitioned amongst themselves, the Syrians and so on and so forth. So you have this conflict in the Arab world, for example, between the Kalmia nationalism, the nationalism of sort of race and language and culture and the Watania nationalism of territorial states. So uh, sort of pan-Arab nationalism versus uh, uh, versus. Uh, uh, kind of nation-state nationalism. And the Kurdish movement kind of parallels that in an interesting way, because although there are no Kurdish states, uh, you have this uh, uh, sort of split, not between kind of the cultural divides amongst the Kurds, not so much based on culture or dialect, but based on which political state they, they, they lived in. So, uh, for example, the two main dialects of Kurdish uh, Kirmanji and Sorani. Sorani is spoken in Iran and, and uh, 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 Iraq, and Kirmanji is spoken mainly in Turkey, Syria, but also in Iran and, uh, and Iraq. But you know, we don't see Kirmanji nationalism, and you don't see Sorani nationalism. Rather, you see different Kurdish nationalisms with different political orientations developing within each of these states, despite these kind of uh, pre, let's say, primordial divisions. So the, the divisions that do exist within Kurdish nationalism today are either ideological or they're based on the international frontiers because, you know, 
the political conditions that prevailed in Turkey, Iraq, and Iran were different. They affected the Kurdish. In all those countries, the Kurds were kind of discriminated in, but in different ways, which affected the political orientation of those movements and gave rise to, you know, if we do want to talk about a multiplicity of Kurdish nationhoods today, we can talk about maybe like you have this kind of pan-Kurdish nationalism, which is powerful amongst the diaspora, which is aspirational amongst many Kurds, but then you have a kind of a very uh, a more institutionally powerful kind of territorial version of Kurdish nationalism, which is a Kurdish nationalism in Turkey, Kurdish nationalism in Iraq, a Kurdish nationalism in Iran, and a Kurdish nationalism in Syria, all of which have their own specificities and and, and political orientations and political organizations. Yeah, well, let's let's, let's talk about some of the uh, the political organizations, right? So, like, I, I think. Um, one of the first uh, acronyms you mentioned, and and something that, that people who might know a little bit of this or likely have heard of, is the uh, is the PKK. So uh, so what's that, and when did it get started? Sure. So the PKK emerged in the late 1970s uh, in Turkey, uh, and Turkey is home to the largest population of Kurds, and the PKK. Uh, was very much regarded itself as a pan-Kurdish movement. So it argued for the complete independence of Kurdistan and the creation of a united independent Kurdistan. Uh, they received support from Syria in their early days. So they actually, initially they excluded Syria from their uh, greater Kurdistan plan. Uh, and in fact, they even uh, accepted the Syrian government narrative at the time that most of the Kurds in Syria originally came from Turkey, so they weren't really Syrians because, you know, Kurds in Syria, many of them were stripped of their citizenship uh, uh, and, and, you know, what kind of citizenship, cit without citizenship. And the Syrian government allowed Syrian Kurds to join the PKK to kind of distract them, sending them uh, over to Turkey to cause trouble with Turkey, which was their rivals. The PKK emerged as this kind of left-wing, a uh, very traditional kind of Marxist-Leninist style political party. Yeah, that's, that, so that stands for uh, Kurdish Workers' Party. Kurdistan Workers' Party. All right, so uh, that uh, that gives you uh, that gives you a little taste. Uh, that's uh, it's a it's a very like you know like it's it's just a really deep dive, you know, for you know I, I think American uh, leftists who. Who might know a little bit about that particular um, liberation struggle, but you know, but but don't really have like a good sense of um, of you know the ins and outs of it. You know, I mean, I certainly learned tons from from listening to uh, to Gene talk about that, and you know, later in the interview, we kind of go through the way that the uh, PKK uh, came out of that sort of more Soviet-inflected kind of Marxist-Leninist view. And was influenced uh, by uh, you know people like Murray Bookchin, who who was a uh, ecological thinker and a kind of quasi Marxist, quasi anarchist, uh, who had these ideas about uh, you know municipalism that uh, have been part of the sort of radical socialist experiment in uh, northern Syria, uh, Rojava, uh, which uh, you know which Gene and uh, Michael Brooks uh, wrote about uh, last year. Uh, and which uh, which actually has involved a lot of uh, cooperatives as part of the uh, structure of that to uh, bring it back to uh, what we we're just talking about uh, with uh, with Professor Wolf. So uh, it was really good talk. You know, always really enjoy uh, talking to uh, to Gene, and there's also um, you know a little bit of continuity there that means something to me because uh, the very first TMBS illicit history uh, was uh, was with Gene. Uh, so. Um, 
you know, that's, that's always, uh, you know, like I said, that, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, that's something that I find meaningful. Uh, but, uh, much more interesting when like the intra-left disputes were, you know, um, what should our attitude be towards like the Kurdish people rather than just like kind of a weird parliamentary, you know what I mean? Like those much more <laughs> like heady, like, uh, you know, foreign policy debates when, when Bernie was running, I mean, we're, we're much more interesting than our like current kind of disputes over tactical things that don't really matter much. Yeah, no, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, this is what we were talking about earlier that, you know, in, in uh, 2019 uh, going into, uh, as 2019 was ending and 2020 was starting, uh, the left was fairly consolidated. You know, you had some cranks who supported Tulsi, but, you know, 99%, you know, pretty consolidated uh, behind the uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, presidential campaign, which was mm -hmm. like a real serious, I mean, you know, he won the first three uh, primaries, you know, uh, there was a uh, there was a while there where uh, people thought, like everybody thought, uh, that he was at least going to show up to the convention with a plurality, and the whole mainstream political debate in the media was about if he shows up to the convention with a plurality, should you know, like like should that mean he gets the nomination, or is it okay to vote for somebody else on the second yeah. round? Uh, so um, so we had this you know this serious like left social democratic effort that that almost captured the American presidency. Uh, and and the left was all about that, and so we were starting to think about these things like um, the uh, you know what I think of as the Daniel Bester question: the if Bernie Sanders becomes president, you know, uh, then what would that mean about you know about foreign policy, right? You know, That's something that we've barely even touched on because you know even as Bernie was proposing some pretty radical, like in 2016, even as Bernie was create like you know, uh, promoting some pretty radical um, domestic policy ideas. He still had a pretty conventional foreign policy outlook in some senses. You know what I mean? Like, like he, he, you know, he didn't vote for the Iraq war and stuff, but like, you know, there, there are other things in his record that. Yeah, no, no, there, there are definitely, yeah, there's some, there's some very bad uh, foreign policy votes in, um, you know, in Bernie's record, especially about Kosovo and, uh, you know, Saad Shakur, you know, there, there are things, you know, there, there's definitely stuff that I didn't like. You know, that was like actually probably my biggest hesitation, you know, going all in the first time, although yeah. I did. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think actually as, you know, by 2020, look, I mean, people like Bessner, you know, were, were involved, you know, in, in the campaign and the sort of advisory capacity starting to think about what would a left uh, foreign policy look like and, you know, and, and you know. And you, and you can tell that, you know, Bernie, the second time around, really did take it to heart that a lot of... um you know, a lot of Palestinian rights advocates and a lot of, um, you know, like like anti-Zionist leftists really criticized his his stances on Israel the first time around. And that was something that he really, I mean, not that he had like a, a perfect stance on it, but he- No, he, but, 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 he, but he did. Like even in 2016, he was a little bit better on that than I thought he was going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, his previous comments and, and, and was like pretty aggressive about asserting- how bad some of the Israeli bombing was and, you know, the humanity of Palestinians. I mean, that, that, I mean, a lot of the 2016 Bernie foreign policy stuff, uh, I wasn't crazy about, like, he had this weird obsession with bringing up, you know, King Abdullah of, of, of Jordan. And uh, I, I didn't like, you know, I, I wish he wouldn't do that. Uh, you know, and yeah. I and mean, you know, whatever, like he's, I remember one of the first articles that I read that really crystallized it for me was by uh, one of the, uh, guest from the last episode, uh, Amberly Frost, uh, you know, who's who's saying uh, who was uh, she was talking about is this was from 2015. She was like, yeah, some people want Elizabeth Warren to run, uh, but you know, come on, for some of us, you know, a uh, 
you know, relatively moderate social Democrat like Bernie is already our compromise candidate, you yeah. know, so, uh, which, uh, you know, yeah. So I, I think that, um, so in 2019 going into 2020, because we had this serious possibility of a Bernie Sanders presidency that, that kind of oriented the left around supporting that. And also um, that meant like, that we were thinking about these bigger questions, right? Like, as uh, as like in the uh, in the Kurdistan case, you know, when um, uh, you know Rojava, uh, you know that uh, that kind of uh, both outpost of the Kurdish liberation movement and also experiment in a you know in, in a kind of you know radically democratic socialism, uh, you know, was being betrayed uh, by the uh, the Trump administration since you know it had temporarily aligned you know for like five minutes with the u.s because they were both fighting isis uh and then uh and then it was sold out to um uh basically you know abandoned to the potentially genocidal attentions of turkey which despite the fact that turkey is a nato ally some people thought that that was some sort of like great anti-imperialist victory uh you know which is which is what gene and uh and michael's article was about abandoned and for what also- the third time too right like we've I mean, we abandoned the Kurds. I mean, not during the Trump administration per se, but we abandoned the Kurds multiple times to be kind yeah, of yeah. Right after the first Gulf War uh, is the one most people know about. But uh, something Jane and I talked about in the interview was, uh, you know, was that uh, was an earlier example uh, way back in uh, the seventies. So, uh, so yeah, this is this is, you know, this has been a repeated pattern. And so how? And so these questions of like, okay, if the left actually took power. Uh, how would we handle things like this? You know, we we obviously want to wind down the empire. We also want to be in solidarity with the press people all around the world, uh, and and that's and trying to think through what that looks like, right? That that those different imperatives, you know, the two that I just mentioned, plus you know, kinds of you know of international cooperation you need, even with a lot of governments that we really dislike for good reasons, to handle things like climate change. That's an interesting question. Yeah, uh, whether this particular like parliamentary maneuver that would be largely symbolic should happen or not uh, is a much less interesting question. Uh, and-, and, and, and ironically, you know, the, the, even the crazier part was that a lot of leftists put like, the, the big question of, you know, like left uh, isolationism or left internationalism, like kind of said, you know what, we're going to put this on the back burner, but then this very, very narrow, like policy question, like now you like strategy question. We're like, all right, half of you guys are gone to us. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, no question. Um, so, uh, so anyway, they, you know, it was it was really good to uh, to to talk to Jane. Of course, uh, both of these people, um, you know, Jane and uh, and Professor Wolf uh, are. Um, yeah, he always signs his email, Rick. Uh, but I've, I'm so used to seeing him, seeing his name that way, right? Prof Wolf, you know, like Twitter and stuff that I can't get out of my head. Uh, but uh, you know, but both of these people are people who uh, who who I knew, you know, through uh, through Michael, and obviously, uh, you know, him passing, you know, was was one of um, you know uh, a big part of of what made you know 2020 uh, so awful you know, for a lot of us. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think, and, you know, of course, you know, all of these things are, are sort of mixed up in my head, you know, the Michael passing, uh, Bernie losing, the pandemic starting, you know, cause, uh, yeah, it's all one big kind of downhill. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely right. Like, cause, cause the pandemic started just as, uh, just as Bernie was losing and, you know, lost Michael just a few months after that. Uh, I, uh, I, I lost my, like my best friend at the beginning of the pandemic or to an overdose. And like, I'd opened up to Michael, like about that, like right before losing my, like, I didn't, I, I was kind of like in a daze for like a month after that happened. And I kind of opened up to David and Michael about that, like right before Michael passed. So it felt like, you know, you start, you know, you open up about something and you have like a long conversation about it with somebody and then they're gone too. And it's like, it, it just fucks you up. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's, you know, there have been a lot of those for a lot of people, mm -hmm. or, of course. I mean, given the scale of death, you know, we've had this this last year, uh, one that's meant a lot, uh, not so much to me. Uh, I, I did get a... Um, I was actually supposed, uh, but to a lot of people that I know, a lot of friends of mine, like, uh, you know, like, like my, my friend and, and co-author of my new book and Jack Benedetto and Bhaskar Sankara and, and, uh, and my former, uh, dead pundits co-host Adam Proctor, you know, that like Leo Panich was a, uh, was a huge you know mentor to uh, both of those guys. And, uh, and, and he, he just passed in a, in a very horrible way since he, he had a, uh, you know, he'd, he'd gotten a medical uh, diagnosis that, you know, that was for something that would have killed him, but, you know, they, they were telling him he had eight to 10 years. And then I think at the hospital, he uh, got COVID yeah. and, uh, and died of that. Uh, and a one that's, that certainly wouldn't be on, um, on the, the radar of, uh, you know, 99.99% of people on the left, uh, since that's not where he spent his time, but, you know, was, was, uh, you know, it was significant to me uh, that happened in November, but it only became public uh, in uh, in December. Uh, was uh, the uh, the death of my uh, graduate school professor uh, Quentin Smith? So I'd written a uh, wrote an article uh, about uh, about him uh, that uh, that people can read uh, for uh, for Arc uh, Arc Digital Media, uh, where I uh, where I do a a monthly column. Uh, so this is the uh, uh so yeah so it's called uh there will be time quentin smith 1952 to uh 2000 uh 2020 uh and um so and and i kind of talk in the article about how um you know both why you know quentin was significant to me personally in in the time that i was i was taking his classes and, and you know he you know that that he was a uh, he was an early uh, early mentor of mine, and then also kind of try to use it to reflect a little bit about um, uh, you know about about philosophy and uh, and about the uh, the university system. Um, since you know, since he's somebody who um, you know he was mostly concerned, you know, not with the sort of uh, political questions that that I try to use whatever kind of philosophical training and taking arguments apart and putting them back together that, that I got, uh, to, um, you know, to be, you know, to contribute to, to, you know, try to be useful in whatever way I can to, you know, the left and, you know, the emerging workers movement, but, you know, he was somebody who was, who was, who spent his life thinking about, um, abstract, uh, philosophical, uh, topics. Uh, this is, you know, I'm just going to share a very brief clip of, uh, him, uh, from uh, you know being uh, you know being being interviewed about those just to uh, just to give people just a, a very cursory idea. So um, 
And here's that. One of the arguments for the existence of God takes as the premise is the existence of consciousness. And from that infers the existence of a higher state of consciousness that people will call God. Well, the very premises of that argument are taken from empirical observations done by sciences and also in everyday life. And there's never been encountered a case of a consciousness that does not have a brain or a body. And so they're trying to explain the consciousness that's dependent on our brain in terms of a consciousness that has no brain, no body, or anything. And so that, that conclusion contradicts the premises because its premises are about consciousness that exists on the basis of brains. Sure. So, uh, like I said, that that just that just gives you a, a very you know it's the tiniest taste uh, both uh, both of the sort of thing that he uh, spent his time talking about, also of the man. You'll notice that uh, his necktie in that clip looks like he tied it uh, while blindfolded, uh, you know, which is uh, you know which which is which is pretty uh, which is pretty vintage uh, Quentin. Uh, one of the first stories that I heard about him after I started my master's program at Western Michigan. Uh, was about the cleaning staff refusing to enter his office, you know, because he he had like a mattress, because like he just work on papers all night and then sleep there sometimes, and uh, containers of yogurt because uh, you know he certainly wasn't going to spend time cooking. He uh, and uh, he said heavy heavy food made it harder for him to think, so he, he just like something you can open up and eat like that. Uh, and um, library books he'd long since forgotten about taking out of the library. Uh, you know, I mean, he literally didn't even have a, uh, a driver's license, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, because because he, he was just somebody who was, I mean, he he, he actually, uh, while he was writing his book, uh, you know, the, the Felt Meanings of the World, uh, which was his attempt to kind of reconcile, you know, his sort of atheist and materialist worldview you see there with the sense that, you know, the world is, is intrinsically significant in some important way. Uh, he was taking a sabbatical and he literally lived for months just working on the book. And uh, this sounds like a joke, but it's true in a, a hole that he dug for himself on a beach. Uh, so uh, so that's 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 kind of who we're talking about here. And of course, that's somebody who, um, you know, I think some people that I know uh, on the left, uh, you know, like our friend and comrade Nathan Robinson, who had its current affairs, who sort of left academic philosophy for exactly this reason will sort of say, well, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to spend your time thinking about these kinds of abstract philosophical questions uh, while, uh, you know, uh, you know, when, uh, when, when we so desperately need to change the world is, you know, to, uh, to, to sort of worry about, you know, consciousness and whether there's God and all that stuff as to steal a line from myself, you know, as the world burns. Uh, and, uh, and I get that perspective and obviously I'm somewhat sympathetic to it because I am very focused on those political issues, but I also have a slightly, uh, different view about this, which is that I think that one of the things, uh, that is, um, you know, even though I don't think any of that stuff is directly, you know, politically important, right? Like, I don't care if anybody's like an atheist or a theist, as long as they believe in, you know, sort of pluralistic democracy and letting everybody live in however they want and, you know, and, and, uh, believe what they want. Uh, but uh, but I think that it's part of what polit part of what politics is for is giving everybody a chance uh, to have a lot of free time and economic security and leisure, so they can make art if that's what they want to do. They can uh, think about these basic questions about reality, like Quentin, you know, spent his time doing if that's what they want to do. Uh, that kind of touches on what we were talking about with Micah too. Um... 
you know, like how resources would be distributed in a future socialist society. I mean, the, the thing is that people, you know, if somebody wants to think about deep philosophical questions, they shouldn't have to also worry about paying, you know, just the basics of like survival. Like that's something that's been part of our, you know, existence for since, you know, since the person probably had their first thought <laughs> about anything, you know what I mean? So. No, totally. Right. Like, and I think that's, I think that's part of, that's part of what I talked about at the end of the article uh, that, um, you know, in some ways, like I think one of the things that made Quentin unique and valuable is that he was so totally preoccupied like, uh, with this, that he was less like your sort of typical, you know, professional, you know, philosophy professor who, uh, you know, who is sure spends a certain amount of time thinking about whatever little area they work on, but like mostly uh, is, indistinguishable from any other member of the uh, professional yeah. material class, uh, you know, than he was like the, you know, like the Dharma bums that, you know, Jack Kerouac wrote about, or like Diogenes, you know, the ancient Greek philosopher who, uh, you know, would, you know, would uh, do, uh, you know, who like literally like lived in a giant ceramic jar that he built, you know, that he had in the, in the center of Athens, you know, cause he didn't want to do anything except for this. And so he was somebody who, you know, because of that, right, often had had trouble fitting into the kind of academic structures that exist now. And I think that that was even true, you know, when I knew him in the early uh, early two thousands. Uh, I can't imagine somebody who is as lost in his own thoughts, uh, who is as eccentric, who is as hard, who had as much trouble fitting in traditional academic structures as Quentin did. Uh, I can't imagine that person if he were like a twenty five year old graduate student today, uh, getting like a tenure job. You know, like yeah. Quentin Smith did, because uh, you know neoliberalism has hit the university system in such a way that you know, with powerless adjuncts to do most of the work, with you know deans always kind of hovering in the background, you know, looking for budgets to cut, like hiring like some like brilliant eccentric messy person like that uh, makes less sense than than ever, and and I think that's I think that's one of the you know, honestly, I think that's one of the reasons it's worth even looking beyond, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of society that maybe some of like Richard Wolff's work points to, which is, I definitely think the kind of socialism we could have anytime soon, you know, that might look a lot like our world in some ways, but that, um, you know, businesses would be owned by the public or by workers, you know, instead of, um, instead of by external owners, uh, like, uh, like we, you know, we have right now, but to look even beyond that, to think about the kind of society that like Aaron Bastani, you know, writes about, you know, fully automated luxury communism when, you know, we could have, you know, machines doing most of the work that was done by humans and, you know, and, but they, but because they were collectively owned, that would mean that everybody could, you know, um, we could spread whatever work had to be done by humans very thin and, you know, and, and everybody, uh, everybody could benefit from that because I think one of the real advantages of that society is, is that if you were, you know, like, like if you're, if you're, you know, look, if you were the, uh, uh, the girl from Queen's Gambit and you just want to think about chess all the time, you know, yeah. if you're Quentin Smith, and you just want to think about philosophy all the time. If you're some amazing mu musician and you just want to, you know, like work on your guitar until your fingers bleed, you know. Then, even if you're not an amazing, you know, musician. No, even, even if you suck, you can at least give it your best shot, right? Like, because you, know, you don't have to worry about paying the bills and, you know, and, and, and whether you're going to lose your job, you know, because you, you know, you're late to work too often because, you know, you couldn't stop practicing in the morning. And, it, and it's a real question, you know, how much, how much talent and how much, you know, um, I, and, and like what could people have achieved, I guess, if capitalism wasn't holding down people. And it's not even the question of like meritocracy that we talk about a lot. Like it's the question of like, you know, what, what like inert talent, I guess, do we have that gets lost just because 
where you know people are just struggling to, to survive in an economic system it doesn't make any sense to you know have um it doesn't really make any sense to just say oh well you know i'm sure like like a bunch of people will just like pull themselves up by the bootstraps they're talented enough like people should have the ability to do whatever they want and not worry about those um those those very basic necessities and you know and i, and I feel like we've lost probably masses of, of potential talent because people are just sitting there working worrying about those basic necessities you know what i mean like poverty is a trap yeah totally right like there's this this classic quote from the great evolutionary biologist and, and marxist actually uh stephen jay gould uh where um he uh he's talking about uh you know people were talking about like uh sort of exhuming and studying einstein's brain and he says I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops, which, you know, which, which gets at the core, uh, you know, the core point, uh, very, uh, very nicely. Uh, but, uh, to, uh, to, to talk, uh, about, um, as always, as, as, uh, as we do every week, uh, about, uh, people who, you know who did get uh, who did get a chance to uh, to you know to make uh, to make music and uh, and to uh, who often you know gave uh, you know gave voice to some of the frustrations of living in the society that we do are mm. uh, joined as always uh, by the great David Griscom. Hey, how are y'all doing? It's good to see you, Force. Yeah, good to see you too, David. Uh, yeah, and just as a reminder, by the way, uh, if uh, if if people have other questions that we you know we didn't get you know uh, as I said the questions that we didn't get to with Wolf before we will answer at the uh, at the end and uh, and if anybody has any other questions about anything else do um, do feel uh, do feel free um, so uh, but I want to um, mm -hmm. we will get to those too but right now let's. Uh, uh, yes. Ooh, man, your mic's loud. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. I'm ready. Let's Cheers, y'all. Cheers. I got my coffee. So. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk about this one uh, today. He's somebody I've been wanting to talk about for a while, um, but it was just one of those things you have to have the right moment and the right feeling about it uh, because he is so special to, to myself and a lot of other people, uh, John Prime. And John Prime was like the real deal. If you're not familiar with him and his music, he's somebody whose music you can play and it don't matter who you are, where you're from, what your life circumstance is like, you, you get it. You really get it. And that's music. I mean, it's music in its truest sense. Uh, he was born in 1946 uh, to a family from Kentucky, but in Illinois. Um, and he'd go back and spend his uh, summers in Kentucky. John Prine was a mailman. Um, and many of his songs actually were written during his time wandering around Chicago, uh, delivering mail to people, weaving through their lives. Uh, he was also drafted during Vietnam, um, but he didn't see any combat. Instead, he went to Germany um, as an army mechanic, a service that he described as drinking beer and pretending to fix cars. But the thing is, like, he still got it. He wrote a song that's a really famous and heart-wrenching uh, song called Sam Stone about the difficulty of that generation. You know, these guys who came home destroyed both physically and mentally um, from a war that they really just didn't understand why they were there. Um, and, and they felt that the people back at, you know, back home didn't understand what they had really been doing in the first place. And, you know, some lines from that song, cause it's just like, it's real poetry. Um, there's a hole in daddy's arm uh, where all the money goes. 
Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. And it's just like, you know, that's, that's a, that's a hope. That's a line of hopelessness. And it's, um, you know, that's a real one. That's all you can say about it. Um, but, you know, John Prine would play music at these like random folk clubs across Chicago. So he won't, he was playing music a little bit before he goes to the war, but then he comes back and he's continuing to be a mailman and just playing open mic gigs. Like never really thought of it as a career or anything really to do, just something that he really enjoyed and something that he wanted to share um, his music with the world. And he would play at these random folk clubs across Chicago. Um, and it's really a beautiful thought knowing who he ended up becoming, but being one of those guys who got to see him for years and years and years, just listening to those songs because the songs that he was playing in those clubs for the most part were the songs that ended up being his hits later in life. Um, there's just something that's so true about that kind of music, just people who are just playing for the sake of the song, um, playing for the sake of the music. Um, but you'll like this, Ben, uh, one person who was really influential in his rise and his popularity and notoriety, um, was Roger Ebert. Uh, the film critic, you know, and everyone who knows anything about him, he's a film critic. He doesn't, he doesn't write about music, but he made one exception um, because he went to go review a movie, uh, was at a, you know, at the movie theater, seeing the movie and just walked out. I don't remember what movie it was, but it, he didn't want to see it. Um, and he was, you know, he wanted a beer after that. So he goes into a random club, um, I think called The Fifth Peg. I might be wrong about that. But anyways, he walks in there and there's this guy singing songs and it really moves him. And that guy is, uh, you know, is John Prine. Um, singing those real heartfelt songs, perceptive songs. And I just have to, and Roger Ebert, instead of doing his movie review, because he did see the movie, did a one-off music review um, titled, Singing Mailman Delivers a Powerful Message in a Few Words. And uh, a couple lines from it too. It's like, he appears on stage with such modesty, he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight. He sings rather quietly and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow. But after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to his lyrics, and then he has you. And he was he was the he was the real deal. But I want to give some people a flavor uh, of his music because it really spanned uh, a wide range. It's like he wrote those songs that were deep from the heart and were really powerful. Um, but he also wrote a lot of really funny songs, and obviously, as is apt for this kind of segment, political ones. A personal favorite of mine is uh, "Your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore." Um, <laughs> And here's some lines from it. Well, I went uh, to the bank this morning and the cashier, he said to me, if you join the Christmas club, we'll give you 10 of them flags for free. Well, I didn't mess around a bit. I took him up on what he said and I stuck them stickers all over my car and one on my wife's forehead. But your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now, Jesus don't like killing no matter what the reason for. And your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. And then as the song goes on, basically, this guy keeps on getting these flag decals and puts so many on his car that he can't see <laughs> and drives the car off the road and dies and then doesn't get into heaven because the flag decal won't get you in heaven anymore. <laughs> um, he also wrote one of my favorite all-time songs, a song made famous by David Allen Coe, You Never Even Call Me By My Name, which is oh, really yeah. fun. Yeah, that's a you know that one. Man. Oh, no, I, I, definitely, I, I definitely know that one. There, there's a... Um, uh, the the best um, you know in a uh, in a slightly different uh, economic system we, we, we can just uh, we can just stick it on uh, but uh, it's a, uh, uh, but it, it has uh, it, it has a great like spoken word interlude you know towards, mm -hmm. towards the end uh, where he's talking about writing back and saying you know uh, you know that um, well the, you know there was a, the one claim was this is the best country western song ever written. Yeah. And uh, and then the response is uh, it's not because uh, there's there's nothing in there about uh, 
mama or trains or prison or getting drunk. Uh, <laughs> so he writes back uh, with a new verse hitting all of those subjects. Yeah. And he co-wrote that song with Steve Goodman. And Steve Goodman's the one who David Allen Coe shouts out in that song uh, because <laughs> John Prine's credit, is, as you heard, is a very modest guy. He said he couldn't claim credit for that song because he was too drunk uh, to <laughs> claim credit for writing that song. Um he also sang another personal song tying this into GTAA. Uh, like he sang Clay Pigeons by Blaze Foley, which again is yeah. beautiful and a real deal song. Um, it's very rare for him to cover jams, uh, but he had a lot of respect for Blaze Foley. Um, he wrote what, in my opinion, is one of my favorite love songs of all time called In Spite of Ourselves. Um, a couple of lines from it's like, she thinks all my jokes are corny. Convict movies make her horny. She likes ketchup on her scrambled eggs. Swears like a sailor when she shaves her leg, her legs. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful song. And the chorus is like, in spite of ourselves, we'll end up sitting on a rainbow against the odds. Honey, we're the big door prize. And it's just like, is that kind of realism and great writing? But it, it's just like a real understanding of what our lives actually are like. The, there's no lack of weight behind anything that he's writing about. Um, but it's not fanciful, right? It's just like that's pretty plain spoken way to describe a really cute uh, you know, love song. Um, he's really good buddies with Sturgill Simpson. Um, Sergio Simpson, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, was really pissed that he wasn't honored because um, for folks who don't know, uh, John Prine uh, did die uh, very recently because of COVID and they didn't honor him at the Country Music Awards. But anyways, he was very close friends with uh, Sergio Simpson. Uh, Johnny Cash was a huge fan of his. Johnny Cash said he doesn't listen to music much when he's back home, except for Guy Clark, John Prine, Ronnie Crawl, and Steve Goodman, uh, who is uh, another one of John Prine's good buddies. Um just a couple of suggestions uh, wrapping up uh, in spite of ourselves. The album is so good. Uh, it's very Hank Williams, senior esque, um, beautiful duets, uh, great line in it. We're not the jet set. We're the old Chevrolet set. Um, <laughs> Illegal smile. Hello. in there. angel from Montgomery are all incredible songs. You know, he died, um, you know, very recently, but in 2018, he came out with an album after 13 years of not putting together any new songs called The Tree of Forgiveness, and it ends with this song that I, I think is a perfect way to end it, called When I Get to Heaven. The line goes, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand, thank him for more blessings than one man can stand, then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band, check into a swell hotel, ain't the afterlife grand, I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale, yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's miles long, nine miles long, I'm going to kiss that pretty girl on a tilt -a whirl because this old man is going to town. <laughs> <laughs> perfect all right uh thank you there so was, much there was a there was one super chat question that i thought would would um be good to ask and it was about uh what instruments do you guys play i thought that would be relevant for yeah so uh so so i'll i'll go first because my answer is less interesting uh and uh and, and i'll 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 say that um you know, I fulfilled various stereotypes by having piano lessons as a kid, and you know, and, and I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I did. Uh, I, I did play. Uh, you know, I, I did play the clarinet at one point. I actually, you know, I like some you know jazz and clubs where I kind of wish I kept that up, but uh, mm. I, I always. Uh, I was used to. Uh, um, you know, but uh, and and I uh, I very briefly uh, took uh, took guitar lessons as a uh, as a teenager. You know who. Mm. Uh, you know, wanted to be a rock star, but you know, they, uh, my, my, my standard joke about all this is that I, 
uh, ended up doing what I've done with my life because, you know, I, I could only, you know, ever really get two chords down. And, and, and my understanding is you need at least three to be a rock star. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> um, I mean, if anyone's curious, I mean, I play, I play guitar and, and banjo. Um, yeah. I've yeah. played music for a long time. Uh, I really, I really love it. Nothing, nothing, nothing too good, but it's something I really enjoy doing. I don't know. I mean, I've I've actually had the pleasure of of uh, of being at uh, the uh, the Griscom residence. Uh, you know, when 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 after a uh, a, a night of bar hopping, uh, David will actually uh, pull out his guitar and give me a little taste. So uh, it's, uh, you know, he's good. Thanks, man. <laughs> all right, all right, y'all. I'll see y'all around. Congratulations right. on the new format, man. All right. Yep. GTAA uh, 2.0. It's, uh, it's good stuff. Hey, right. Congratulations on, uh, on Thursday doing the first episode of Left Reckoning. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, Thursday no, at I'll... 7 Eastern. Yeah, you want, to, uh, big on... you, you want to tell us a little bit about what you've got planned for the first official episode? Yeah, I mean, we're going to be uh, launching uh, first official episode, post-game, all that good times and fun. Uh, definitely going to be breaking down whatever happens in Georgia. Some really exciting union uh, stories to tell. Uh, I believe we're going to have Malika Jabali on, who's one of my oh, favorite man. thinkers yeah. and writers, uh, to just sort of talk a little bit big picture because uh, we're setting up and entering into a new era, and there's a lot of big questions to start answering, and uh, I'm really looking forward to doing that. So, yeah, Matt Leck and I are, are launching Left Reckoning on Thursday, so check it out, everybody. Nice. Well, I will, uh, I will definitely uh, be watching, and as far as uh, this show next Monday, don't worry because uh, – uh, because we have not yet achieved the uh, the kind of economic system that Richard Wolf advocates, uh, I am going to uh, use my powers uh, as Forrest Boss to uh, to force him to drink some whiskey with us next week. So uh, you know, <laughs> I, don't know. Gonna, I don't know. It's, it's not going to be coffee next time. But I'm, uh, on, I'm on the pandemic like sobriety thing, so I don't. <laughs> I, don't uh, I haven't I haven't taken a drink since March. Oh, nice man. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually, all, all seriousness, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> you from, you know, from keeping that up, but, uh, uh, but in any case, uh, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, brother. See you next week. Of course, see you all around. All right, um, and uh, I do want to, um, you know, before uh, before we take uh, the uh, the last uh, the last few super chat questions. And uh, and wrap up uh, this uh, this first live episode. Uh, I do want to uh, want to show. Uh, there's uh, so um, the uh, the last. Um, so this uh, this was uh, David Griscom. Uh, the uh, the last um, uh, video that he did for uh, for Jacobin. Uh, which, uh, which I think is a, uh, I, I think is worth watching uh, before uh, before we wrap up, uh, because it's a nice, um, like it's a nice clear explanation of something that I think uh, I think American uh, American progressives and leftists oftentimes maybe miss, uh, because uh, we're so used to dealing with our particular form. Of uh, of horrendously backwards, even by the standards of uh, first world capitalism, uh, you know, uh, iteration of uh, of the system uh, that we uh, that like we get obsessed with the particularities of, of what we've got here, and, and we miss some larger structural problems. Uh, so let's uh, let's just watch that, and then we'll uh, and then we'll uh, take a few more questions and wrap up. 
The left talks a lot about money and politics, and they absolutely should. But we also have to talk about the power that the money outside of politics has, because that is the real way that the rich get what they want, no matter who comes to power. Now, of course, many politicians are themselves businessmen and businesswomen, and there's a disgusting trove of wealth that is spent in every election cycle. But to really understand why the government regularly favors the rich, we have to explain the structural bias towards capital. And this bias is why capitalism can never be compatible with democracy. Now, obviously the government and what I'll more broadly call the state makes political decisions for all of society. But at the same time, corporations and capitalists own all of the resources. This essentially means that if the state wants to carry out any program that benefits working people economically, those resources needed are probably already in private hands. In other words, redistributive legislation effectively involves the state asking capitalists to hand over their money. Now, this actually happens on a regular basis when it comes to taxes, but this arrangement produces horrendous results that puts profits over people's needs. Just look at what happened earlier this year in Argentina. During the explosion of the COVID crisis, the finance minister of Argentina, Martin Guzman, was engaged in high-stakes negotiations with the future of the Argentine economy weighing in the balance. He wasn't spending all of his time figuring out the best ways to protect people financially from this crisis. Instead, he was negotiating with international bondholders led by BlackRock, who were demanding payments despite the devastation of COVID to the economy. They wanted payments, but they also wanted assurances that the newly elected government, which was elected on a mandate of rejecting austerity, would not go too far to the left in their policy prescriptions. In a democratic society, what right should the rich have to dictate policies to governments? What right should the rich have to dictate policies to the representatives of the people? Capitalists simply don't want to be subjected to democracy, which is why they've spent decades creating international systems that essentially shield them from democratic rule. And they leverage their vast wealth to bring democratic governments to their knees. The sad thing is the Argentine crisis wasn't particularly extraordinary or unique, but let's get it right. These financial crises are crises of democracy. Now, there are plenty of examples of left governments having to bend. And look, a lot of these are political failures, strategy failures, yes. But these are also failures that are caused by material conditions. <laughs> and it certainly happens here in the United States and was a very real threat if Bernie Sanders was going to come to power. Let's really think through what that would mean. The state has a budget, and that budget needs to be financed via income. For the state, their income is tax revenue, and that taxation comes out of both personal income and corporate income. Those are based on economic growth and employment. Individuals can only pay their taxes if they're employed, and corporations can only pay their taxes if they're profitable and the economy is continuing to grow. It also needs to be mentioned that capitalists and their profitability are what determine who's employed and who's not. That means two things. 
The state's ability to do anything that requires managing or reallocating resources is structurally tied to the profitability of firms and that capitals have an informal veto power over political decisions. All individual capitalists faced with the prospect of a left government make a judgment on the profitability of their investments. If they aren't confident that they'll get the returns they want, they have a number of tools they can use that can undermine the ambitions of progressives and socialists in office. Chief among these are the capital strike and capital flight. The capital strike essentially is the ability of the capitalist class to withhold investment, essentially stop spending until they get conditions that are preferable to them. This puts us at a disadvantage, even with our democratic victories, turning those into positive policy outcomes. As long as we have the commanding heights of our society in private hands, we will be at a huge disadvantage. We have to build the political and social power that is necessary to challenge this inequity and include as part of our politics, not just the demand that the rich pay their fair share, but that we're also going to chip away at a system of virtual deregulation of and the unfettered movement of capital. And that brings us to the second major tool that capitalists use um, to attack democratically elected governments, and that's capital flight. And essentially what that means is moving money out of a country, a state, or region to find different conditions elsewhere. Think about what happens in the United States. Corporations get states to bid against one another, lowering taxes and eradicating workers' protections. This tactic has decimated organized labor and entire communities. It's not the only power that the rich have, but it is one of the major ways that the rich avoid the collective will of democracy. And you have to understand this, that the United States government not only knows this is going on, but they tolerate it. It's really important to know, especially in the case of the United States, it's not like all this money um, that they talk about, that people talk about has moved to an offshore account, is actually offshore. Rather, the legal entities just have their names changed and their registrations changed. And then that money flows right back into the United States to buy property and financial products. It's also invested you know, across all of the major financial markets the world over. So there are ways that we can fight back. And look, not all of them are easy, but we have to understand how capitalists wield their power so that we can combat it. So look, there's one tactic that we can use, especially in combating capital flight, and that is reintroducing capital controls, which essentially are a system of taxes and limitations on international transfers of wealth. Understand this, capital controls aren't some radical communist idea. Liberal governments the world over have used them just following Keynesian economics. In fact, capital controls were the norm established from Bretton Woods, which was a system of monetary management that was created after World War II, you know, an agreement between the major Western European economies, North American economies, and Japan. This was the norm in very recent history, but let's not misunderstand this either. Capital controls are not some silver bullet. Sometimes they work and sometimes they can be disastrous. But their eradication as the norm in 1974, look, there is no accident that this shift ties together with the global rise of neoliberalism. Their eradication is proof of the stranglehold that capitalists have on democracies across the globe. We can't even try it. It's not even on the agenda of most reformist parties. 
We are in another economic crisis, and the government in the United States has moved with historic speed to deliver stability to the rich and to the financial system. Did they get anything in return for it? Did you? This was not the final crisis, and it will not be the last. Contrary to their arguments, the wealthy need the government. They need it to provide them with economic relief, to create the conditions in which they prosper, and to protect their wealth. Now, the leadership of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have shown time and time again that they have no real interest in challenging this power dynamic. But they certainly could. And we have to build working class political movements that can not only demand, but force their demands to be met in the future. The current system is unsustainable, ecologically, morally, and economically. This crisis has only shown the immense power of the rich to demand and dictate terms to the government in a so-called democracy. Make no mistake about it. These crises are economic, but they have their foundation in a crisis of democracy. And we need to change that. Yeah. So, you know, like what I really like about this is, you know, cause I, I see this all the time, people saying like, Oh, you know, campaign finance, you know, uh, reform like this will be like this um the silver bullet that'll let us yeah. you know, uh, as if that's the one problem that that our political system has yeah 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 exactly right and um and i and i think that of, and of course like all of the bigger structural factors that david is pointing to in that video uh are are things that uh that can you know that like are ways that capitalists can make you know can work their will in, in the political sphere no matter what the campaign finance laws yeah. are, there are countries all around the world that have you know much better finance you know campaign finance systems. The U.S. does, uh, but it's it's not that the you know but the uh, the ruling class still rules. You know that uh, there's, there's, they they have so many more uh, techniques you know to to make sure that their bidding is done, uh, and and so I, I think this is worth mentioning for a couple reasons. One of them again, it's that kind of like. Uh, left provincialism that we get, you know, sometimes where uh, where it's like we we talk about this stuff as if the United States, you know, was the only country in the uh, in the capitalist world. Like another example I see all the time is people saying, "Oh, well, you know, the big obstacle to everything that we want is uh, is the two party system." You know, if if we could break out of that, then you know, we could have like a you know, labor or socialist party, and then we get all the stuff we want. And of course, you know, an electorally viable third party would be amazing, but uh, but like you know, look around the world, you know, every other country practically has, you know, I'm exaggerating. There are other places, yeah. some usually not quite as uh, exclusionary of, of alternative parties as the U S but there are other places with, you know, certainly have two party systems, but there are tons of countries that have parliamentary systems and various socialist and communist and green labor parties that, you know, have representation in parliament. Uh, and none of those have been immune from, you know, from neoliberalism, you know, yeah. so, and and they always have to. I mean, especially in parliamentary systems, they always kind of have to have a have an alliance with a with usually a bigger neoliberal party. So the gains that they get are are far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like to go back to AOC, who we started with. Like one of the other things I really like about her is is her. Um, you know, and I've look. I mean, I've I've got my I've got my criticisms. I I I actually do agree, even if I think that you know, even if I think that the particular tactic that's dominated left discussion lately, you know, doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, I do agree that, you know, that there are times when she's, she acts way too much like a junior partner and not nearly confrontational mm -hmm. enough. 
you know, makes positive comments about, you know, centrist leaders, stuff like that. I don't like any of that. Calling Pelosi mama bear or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, I didn't like that. I don't, you know, I don't like, I think that sometimes she speaks this kind of woke intersectional language that is, that, um, communicates with one particular segment of of the working class but but not uh, a lot of others and 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 i think that's a that's a big problem right you know i think you can have social progressive positions without you know communicating in that language uh so part of that is is where she's you know who her constituent constituents are i'd say for that point you know what i mean like she's she's in queens and she's like you know running in city politics she's not you know she's not yeah. talking to people in the midwest necessarily or like somewhere where you know somewhere where the that that type of language is kind of more yeah, that's 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 right that's right like i mean of course obviously we need a socialist movement that can speak to people in the midwest and mm-hmm. everywhere else but but yeah I, I certainly take your point about why uh but uh but that said right like i think there is something enormously valuable about having someone who you know, as well as being a, you know, hardcore supporter of Medicare for all and a green new deal and all that stuff uh, that, uh, that she does like just say these things that just wouldn't be thoughts that would normally be expressed in mainstream politics, like Amazon should be turned into a worker cooperative or like when she said on many different occasions, Hey, in any normal country, uh, me and uh, Nancy Pelosi or me and Chuck Schumer, me and Joe Biden wouldn't even be in the same political party which is totally true. But of course the point you're pointing to is what complicates it, which is that if we had a parliamentary system, yeah, they wouldn't be in the same party, but they uh, would probably still be forced into some sort of coalition. And yeah, like a set, like a, like not a center left coalition, but you know, what, what would be considered a a center left coalition by our standards of some kind. Yeah. And and I think like a larger thing that, that, uh, that often happens, like, I I think like a larger problem with a lot of these things is that, the situation we're facing is so bad, right? Like it, it's so, I, I, I feel like I've overused the word nightmarish on this episode, but I mean, like, I, I really feel like that's the word to apply to a situation where millions and millions of people literally lose their health insurance during and because of a, uh, a pandemic. Uh, so, so our situation is so bad right now uh, that I think oftentimes people who are rightly horrified by it, you know, like are sort of looking for that, that one neat trick that's going to break mm-hmm. us out of it, right? So, if only we could have a third party. If only we could. Uh, if only we could, um, you know, uh, or if only we could use this particular parliamentary maneuver within the Democratic Party. I mean, it, I mean it, the big, the big irony of of the third party point too is that if if we did have a third party, like it's the Libertarian Party is what's set up to be the third party. I mean, numbers wise, if yeah, if, no, it's 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 yeah like somehow like achieved a, a third mainstream party, like their, their party is, is the third biggest party. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, since, uh, you know, since Ralph Nader, uh, ran in, in 2000 and, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I, I love Ralph Nader. I've, I've been on his show. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big fan, uh, even though I don't think his, his, his electoral strategy panned out. Uh, but, uh, but since he ran in 2000, you know, every other case, like the, libertarian has always whomped, you know, the Green Party candidate, you know, yeah. in the election, although of course the libertarian still gets a very marginal, you know, percentage. But the but the point is like that, yeah, thinking, oh, if only we had a third party, if only we did this one particular parliamentary trick within the Democratic Party, uh, if only, or in in David's example, if only we had, you know, campaign finance uh, you know, reform, then we could solve all these problems. And I think what all these myths, and I'm not saying that 
like some of these things, you know, I mean, obviously we have to take these case by case. I think some of these are good ideas and some of them are bad ideas, but like, not that none of these things are worth doing anyway. Right. But like the larger thing that David is pointing to in the video is that what you need, uh, the, the problem is structural. The problem is not that, you know, um, is not about uh, how who's truly committed and who isn't or or how or what ballot lines they're running on or even how elections work as in campaign finance reform. You know, the big problem is who has power and who doesn't. And there are ways even, you know, even with like, and so the reason, you know, like the reason that rich people get to have their will done politically uh, is that they have all the structural power within capitalism and uh, in the ways that David is uh, is talking about. And that, that can't like, and this is also important because a lot of people will say, um, you know, last reference to on this show, but, you know, Jimmy Dore has said uh, that uh, that capitalism would be fine if only we had like certain kinds of legal reforms and, you know, then, then like, you know, we could have capitalism uh, and, and it would be okay. You know, what would be wrong with capitalism plus lots of social democracy, stuff like that. Yeah. And I get the impulse because that sounds more like grounded to a lot of people, like, like something more like what could actually happen. Uh, but the problem you know, the two problems with that, right? So first of all, like our problem with it, right, as, as socialists is that we think that even the best possible version, you know, like that you could paint of how capitalism could play out, you know, there's, there's, is still, uh, you know, like it's still fundamentally unfair and undemocratic and how power is arranged in the workplace. But the other problem that David's pointed to uh, is that as long as the commanding heights of the economy are, are run by private individuals like this, um, like saying, oh yeah, if only we had that plus really stable social democracy that was never undermined by the efforts of capitalists would be fine is a little bit like saying, you know, like whatever, like if, you know, it's, you know, uh, it, it would be fine to let the foxes run loose in the hen house if only they agreed not to eat any pens ever. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, like that's, that's just not a useful way to use the word if. Right. So um I, I, and and of course there are ways even within you know I mean ultimately we do obviously need to to get beyond capitalism to have you know democracy at work uh, as Rich Wolf says but uh, but there are ways that even within capitalism that you know working class can build up power that it can use to achieve important reforms like Medicare for all uh, and but uh, the problem is that there there is only one way to do that right like the only way that we have. Like there aren't, there are not success, like, you know, in countries that do have meaningful multi-party systems, there are no successful uh, labor or socialist parties that don't have, uh, I mean, I guess, unless we're going to count like, you know, whatever, like, you know, Maoism or something that you could have like peasant armies encircling the cities, but, you know, in terms of countries relevantly like the United States, and certainly in terms of, of, uh, of the sorts of things that we're, uh, that we're aiming towards, there are no lay successful labor and socialist parties uh, that don't uh, that don't have as their base an organized working class. You know that the labor movement has almost ceased to exist in the United States. We have a six point two percent private sector unionization rate, uh, and and that's that's like like you just at, at a certain point it's like saying that you can win without an army, and it's like no, you can't. Yeah, you understand that organizing an army is incredibly hard and difficult, and you know. And, and unsexy and frustrating process, but I mean, it's the only one that's gonna ever get you where you wanna go. I mean, also a big, a big uh, I guess, hurdle to jump over is that it's not, but we've kind of been gaslit into feeling like power is almost like a, like a hypothetical concept. You know what I mean? Like, pa like power dynamics, we've kind of been 
trained to feel like our, our it's not something tangible it's not something you can like hold in your hand and express like you know what i mean like like you just say like there are power dynamics whereas money is something tangible you say well you give this much money to a politician that politician is then able to or that politician then you know does something for you but that's not how most things work it is all power dynamics and it is all you know not not hypothetical but intangible kind of you know what i mean like you, you can't see it in front of you it's just relationships between people and relationships between uh bosses and workers and relationships between corporations so it, it's it's kind of like you know that's where i guess theory comes in but a lot of people yeah. are theory at first at this point and yeah yeah and, and, and i think we need to be careful about how we say that because i i think what you're saying is totally right but um i think that there's like a certain way that um Look, anybody who's been in online leftist spaces has met the person who's like, oh, well, if you disagree with me, you know, it's, that, that just means you haven't read enough theory. And like, of course, you know, you need to be able to uh, distill the theory uh, yeah. into, uh, into some, you know, into some relatively accessible form, at least uh, at least at least big doses of it. So people believe that there's something that, you know, it's worth their time. Right. You know, that yeah, they're, 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 I don't I don't think that physically like reading theory is necessarily the full answer. I just think that. There needs to be a way that people start thinking about these things kind of intangibly rather than just simply going like simply feeling like money is the problem or, you know, greed is the problem. And like that systemic critique, like it is a critique that has to be developed. And you know what I mean? Like, like you can develop it without reading theory. Like, yeah. People know that, like, you know, your boss is somebody. I mean, if you're working for a corporation anyway, like your boss is somebody above you and they have power over you. And you can explain that to somebody without, you know, making them read like a, a thousand page book on it. But. Sure. And I'm, hey, look, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, look at, look at the background I come out of. I'm in favor of reading thousand page books, but you know, there are, you know, people do have limited time. And, yeah. Know, and, and not everybody. Has the, yeah. Everybody not has. everybody has the temperament, but also even people who do have the temperament, like you need to be able to give them some reason to think it's going to be worth their time. Mm -hmm. so, so it's, it's like, you like the thing that you shouldn't do is just, Hey, uh, if you read this thousand page book, trust me, all your questions will be answered, right? You yeah. know, you have a, like that at a certain point, like almost starts to sound like a leftist version of Scientology that like, oh, you know, all your doubts will be answered once you get up to OT10, you know. Uh, as as, uh, as Richard Wolf just said, it's almost like a religious, like it's, it begins to sound almost religious when you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, so, um so yeah, let's uh, let's do uh, let's do the last uh, last few super chat questions uh, that we I haven't. Think you kind of kept up with them. I don't. So I know there were a couple that we missed. So there was one about uh, Giannis Varoufakis that I remember from uh, from a while back. Uh, if there's, they, there's also one about uh, that was supposed to be I think you and Richard Wolf, but it was about a favorite. Like, what's your favorite book? <laughs> Yeah, uh, oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember seeing that one go by. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll do a few. Um, uh, so, I, I think that uh, that certainly, as uh, as far as um, you know, as far as political uh, books uh, books go, uh, I think that uh, as far as as far as relatively recent political books go, let's put it that way. Uh, so, uh, two, uh, that I, uh, that I read last year, uh, that, uh, uh, that I really liked, uh, were, um, uh, the people know a brief history of anti-populism. Yeah. That was, that was my favorite book that I read this, this last year. 
Yeah, yeah, we uh, and and yeah, this is a good time to. I'm not going to show it again because I showed it in the live stream a few days ago. But uh, uh, but to uh, to plug the video that that uh, that you and and Vic Viana you know worked on uh, that uh, was uh, from uh, Thomas Frank uh, talking about the the subject of that book uh, yeah. on, on Jacobin, which is uh, I, just, I don't know if he knew that we were doing that, but within like a very short amount of time, he like tweeted it out as if he did. So I was like, oh, that's that's. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a uh, yeah. I mean, he was, he was a lot of fun to to have when he was a guest on uh, on this show. Uh, although he's he's very um, like uh, you know let's 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 put it this way. He makes uh, he makes Richard Wolf look you know uh, look very like quiet and reserved. You know, in terms yeah. of like, uh, you know, in terms of how hard it is to kind of like grab the mic back from him at a certain point. But uh, he, but, narrated, yeah. he narrated his own audiobook, which is. Yeah, kind of a boss move on it. Honestly, it is. It is. Yeah. No, I love. I love Thomas Frank. His his book before that, Listen Liberal, uh, whatever happened to the Party of the People, uh, is um, was was actually really influential on me a few years ago. Like really helped like kind of shape, you know, because I was I was reading that, or actually I was listening to the audiobook of that one. You know, sort of one dog walk at a time. Uh, while uh, just as the 2016 uh, primaries uh, were, were wrapping up and like, I really felt as I listened to that book, you know uh, I mean, I don't know if I was even like familiar with the phrase like professional managerial class yet, but like basically that was my introduction to the set of conceptual tools. And it was really, um, I really felt like, Oh, now I understand what just happened. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, 2016 election. So even though there are certain ways that I diverge from it in terms of larger worldview, I think one of those is sort of indicated by the subtitle, of listen liberal, you know, that like, I don't think the, uh, the democratic party was ever really, you know, the party of the people. Uh, I think it was a, I think it was, I think it's always been a, uh, a party of a certain wing of the capitalist class that under certain specific, you know, historical conditions, uh, you know, was, um, you know, was, was carrying out a sort of modified version of a social democratic, you know, program watered down. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think, you know, my, Look, my nomination for the uh, the party of the people in the 1930s will be Norman Thomas's uh, Socialist Party, uh, but uh, I I, th- I think he's he's a really good writer. I think he's a really clear thinker, and I think he has a lot to say about um, you know contemporary liberalism and what's wrong with it, and a kind of left critique of that. That's that's definitely worth um, you know that's that's definitely worth reading and listening to. Another one I read uh, last year that that was big for me was uh, Hate Inc. Uh, by uh, Matt Taibbi. Yeah, I read that. I read that this year too. Yeah, which wow. is, um, yeah, which is really, I think is a really good, really interesting book. I think a lot of what um, you know Taibbi says in there, you know, like he originally conceived it as a follow up to um, uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's classic media critique book, uh, Manufactured Consent, mm-hmm. and there's still an element of that, but it also sort of went off in a different direction. Ends with an interview with Chomsky about it, but it's. Um, but I, I think that like what he's saying, like I actually think some people on the left sort of have like an immediate reaction to uh, to some of what uh, to some of what Taibi is saying. Uh, thank you for that, brother. Uh, in um, in uh, Hate Inc. That's like, oh, this sounds like you know, sort of uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this sounds like sort of uh, both. Uh, you know, both sidesism or like, you know, cause, cause, you know, to the extent that, you know, Taibbi is saying, well, the way, you know, talking about the way that the media has fragmented uh, that, you know, like the biggest cable news shows now have like the, this 
tiny fraction of like what Walter Cronkite's reach were. And as part of that, uh, it's, it's become much more segmented into these different culture war bubbles uh, that, uh, that they, that all of their business incentiveness now are to cater to those bubbles. And uh, this is all bad, right? Like one good thing about it, you know, is that, as the big media has fragmented and, uh, and, uh, as, as like all, you know, what used to be called alternative media, uh, is, uh, has like, uh, you know, as the technology has changed, right. Certainly hasn't leveled the playing field, but, you know, but it has in a very, in a relative sense and, you know, and, and it's, and it's, and look, it's a wonderful thing that we now live in a world where, um, where you can, um, you know, if I if I'd rather watch, you know, uh, Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila than, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow or, you know, or or whatever ghouls are on Fox now, uh, then I can. Right. And I, I can get like a show that looks a lot like that and feels a lot like that. And, you know, if I have the right app, you know, I could even watch it on my TV set. Uh, but um, but the bad thing about everybody being able to just choose their own media diets a la carte. Uh, is that the uh, is that it changes the in- the incentive structure of big media companies, uh, and and it means that people are let even less likely to be exposed to things outside of their particular culture war bubbles. Yeah, and uh, and I think that a lot of I think that's something that's not part of a lot of leftist media critique, but really should be. Uh, and and it's and it's something that like because I think people hear oh like you're saying like you know whatever you know, progressives and conservatives are both bad. I don't like that. Right. You know, but I, I, I think people should stop and think about what Taibbi is saying there. And, and I think there's a real, um, I think there's a valuable contribution. There's, there's definitely, you know, I mean the echo, I, I kind of hate the term echo chamber because I feel like it's so overused, it's the- but, but you know, there, there is that kind of effect and, and, and of course social media, which is where a lot of people get their news from, or, you know what I mean? Like see articles from anyway, like, that it kind of incentivizes that too because you know you start getting things tailored to you rather than like based on your interests based on other things you've posted rather than getting you know advertisements yeah 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 totally yeah it's like uh yeah it's like the uh (laughs) that line about the uh the old joke about you know when the drug ads end with you to ask your doctor such and such is right for you it's like well hold on if you're telling your doctor what to prescribe for you, is that a doctor or is it a dealer? Right. Like, yeah. that's, you know, like, uh, yeah, there, there is a real, you know, there's a real problem there. Uh, and, and it's one that like that kind of media segmentation, like, again, there are, there are peripheral benefits for the left, but it's also something um, that that's, that's very bad for us. Right. And, and this is uh, in, in a larger sense uh, because, because it's, uh, it makes it harder for people to be exposed to things, you know, outside of, of their little, you know, a la carte self-selected uh, diets. And so if we're a minority of society trying to get through in a way that actually makes our job even harder. And it's also, um, it's also something that um, I, I, you know, that like when Taibe talks about like, you know, the, the whole you know, media business model, making us, you know, hating each other, Again, I can understand why some people have a uh, an immediate, uh, um, you know, an immediate bad reaction to that, uh, you know, because they they think of like bemoaning polarization as like a you know annoying centrist thing, and I, I get that, but uh, but I but I would answer that there's polarization, there's polarization, right? You know, there's a there's a kind of class war polarization that would be very good for us, but that doesn't mean that the kind of culture war polarization that exists right now isn't very very bad news. Well, the, 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 you know, the, 
the complaint that I have about it, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, as, you know, every fucking person is complaining about polarization, is that it's not, you know, polarization implies that there's two poles on the opposite sides of, you know, like the opposite sides of society that are that are kind of spread apart, but it's not. It's really this sliver that the power structure wants you to think that, you know, you can only be this far right, or, you know what I mean, this far left, this far right. And, you know, it, it, it creates a, a situation where, two two groups i guess two political parties are keeping you within you know what i mean like sheepdogging you within the same kind of you know small small segment of of two poles within a much larger like globally speaking like like on a on a graph of pretty much anywhere else that's had a non-capitalist like struggle at one point it's like two points that are right here and then uh, but they're like they're like yo you could be all the way over here or all the way over here and like we just got yeah, yeah. the old the old uh, the old you know the old line about this is uh, which is true is that the Democratic Party is the second most enthusiastically capitalist major party in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no question. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, actually, and uh, I will just I will just really briefly plug it on this exact point about thinking about kinds of polarization. That's something I uh, wrote for uh, for Jacobin uh, near the end of the year. Uh, this uh, this article. Uh, we uh, we don't need a culture war. We need a class war. So uh, anybody who's uh, anybody's curious about that can uh, check that out. But to answer the uh, answer the other part of the uh, the question, because it's uh, fiction or nonfiction, I know I just I know I just listed a couple of like recent uh, nonfiction uh, books uh, that I uh, uh, that I liked. Uh, others that I'd, I'd add to the, to that list uh, are uh, Bhaskar Sankara's Socialist Manifesto uh, and um, the uh, uh, John Ronson's uh, "So You're Being Publicly Shamed," which which was actually one of my proudest writing moments this year because uh, I I did a what's you know five years later review essay about that for Jacobin and uh, uh, and uh, Ronson uh, uh, Ronson tweeted it out so you know which which I was uh, I was I was relieved by too because like there were parts of it that were a little bit critical you know but uh, he seemed to uh, uh, he seemed to take it in stride but it's a very good book. Uh, obviously, as as far as, uh, as 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 far as you know, more generally speaking, uh, I think um, the uh, this is going to sound like kind of a funny thing to say, uh, but um, uh, the uh, but uh, the critique of the Gotha program, I think, is something that I often like recommend that people read, like because it's so short and so accessible. But you know, it gives you. A window into Mark, you know, what Marx actually thought and didn't think that you know that you wouldn't get from a lot of other sources, especially in the first chapter. Uh, the uh, as as far as um, the intersection between Marxism and, and where I come out of ac- academically, which is analytic philosophy, I think everything that G. A. Cohen wrote uh, is really good. Uh, and so, uh, like he has a book called uh, Self Ownership, Freedom, and Equality where he's arguing against libertarianism uh, that I really like. And then I guess as far as fiction goes, uh, the, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I think that uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just bring up two, uh, two authors that, that I really like uh, very different authors that I like for very different reasons. Uh, when um, one of which actually in the last thing that I wrote for Jacobin uh, at the, uh, at the end of the year, I managed to, uh, to sneak in, uh, a, uh, a reference to uh, who is uh, so um, uh, Charles Bukowski, uh, who I, I wrote. Uh, so I had this uh, this article that was actually on New Year's Eve uh, in Jacobin, uh, abolish inherited wealth. 
uh, which uh, you know, which which starts out with a uh, with a reference to uh, Bukowski's novel uh, Hollywood, uh, which um, you know, I mean, I, I think that there are. Uh, you know, I, I think there are legitimate reasons why he might not be, you know, everybody's thing, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, in, in terms, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, sexism and other things, you know, but I, I, th I think, I think beyond being a really entertaining uh, writer in, in various forms, uh, I, I also think actually legitimately from a socialist point of view, that, uh, that he's somebody who writes about working class experience in a way that you don't often get, you know, in a lot of other kinds of literature, uh, so, uh, you know, so Bukowski is uh, one of mine and, uh, and another one, you know, totally different. Uh, but, uh, I, I really love, uh, Philip Roth, especially these novels that Roth wrote like in the late nineties and going into the early two thousands, uh, called the American trilogy, which are these three books, the human stain, I married a communist, which is his book about McCarthyism and, uh, American pastoral, uh, which are really, um, you know, which, which are like both like very human books and not really about politics in a certain way, but also like very intensely political books in a different way. Uh, and, um, and those are like, those, those are books that have, have meant a lot to me. Um, like American pastoral, literally when, uh, when me and, uh, and my wife, Jennifer were, um, getting ready, uh, to leave, uh, South Korea after we'd, you know, we'd been living there, you know, I'd been living there for, uh, for, for two years at that point. And she was there with me for part of that. And, uh, we had to, uh, give up a bunch of, you know, a bunch of books to, uh, donate to the, uh, bookshelf at the local expat bar since, uh, we couldn't carry them all in our luggage. And, uh, after a lot of agonizing decisions about, uh, about which, uh, which books to bring and, and, and which to leave, uh, you know, I'd, uh, that one, uh, I had like the sort of pile of books to bring and the pile of books to leave. And um, Jennifer fished American pastoral out of the pile of books to, to leave. And she was like, you know, come on, you're not going to leave this. You, you love this book too much. You know? So, uh, so that, that is some, uh, that is some sign of, uh, of what that, uh, that book means to me. Uh, so is that it for, uh, is that it for the questions? Um, there's one more. Um, this was supposed to be a super chat question, I guess, attached to, a different one and it didn't end up showing up for some reason. Um, quick one. I read Natural Right and History by Leo Strauss and finished it thinking he was a leftist socialist, but apparently he's a neocon idol. What did I miss? Yeah, uh, that's a, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, so yeah, I know Strauss is, uh, is big for, uh, for neocons. Uh, I mean, I wonder if there might be, and this is just speculative, you know, like some like critique of sort of, um, you know, consensus liberalism in here that like is one of those things that you could make uh, from a bunch of different political directions that, you know, that maybe uh, that maybe the, the viewer left that question was, uh, you know, was, was picking up on, um, you know, that, I mean, look, there are, you know, I, I know people who have very you know, progressive and left-wing views who get a lot out of reading Carl Schmidt and uh, he was literally a Nazi, uh, you know, so, uh, but I, I think there are some basic insights about how politics work there that, you know, that you can get out of it you know, that you can get out of Schmidt's, uh, Schmidt's work, uh, you know, even obviously while disagreeing with his horrific, uh, you know, political, uh, you know, political commitments. Uh, but uh, yeah, actually, I, and, and, and also since we were just talking about novels, uh, Jonathan Franzen's novel, uh, Freedom, there's a whole thing in there about where a neocon is, uh, is talking about uh, concepts from, uh, from Leo Strauss. But uh, I'm not, I think, necessarily the person to give a deep dive answer to that question, but that's something we're thinking about for a future uh, for a future episode. 
uh, to uh, to bring on somebody who who is an expert to uh, to have that um, have that conversation. I also know if the, whoever asked this uh, can um, whoever asked this if they're still watching uh, the the Giannis Varoufakis one we missed earlier. I didn't actually know what was being referred to in any case, so you don't have to make a super chat or anything. But if you just uh, leave in the chat, like just a little, another quick comment, letting us know what you were talking about, uh, then then I'd be happy to answer that too if 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 that happens before we get off. But uh, but anyway, uh, otherwise uh, I do want to just uh, just push uh, a, a couple things that are uh, they're coming out to let people know about some of what we've got. Uh, going on uh, after this. Uh, so the next regular uh, Monday episode, uh, so next Monday, January 11th, uh, is uh, going to uh, be with uh, Thaddeus Russell. So uh, that should be fun, a little bit more of a debate, obviously. Uh, so I basically think Wolf is right about everything. Uh, but, uh, but you know, he's always, you know, uh, he's always an interesting, uh, interesting guest when I've heard him on, uh, on the podcast. Looking forward to that one. Uh, one after that, by the way, is going to be uh, Michael Albert, uh, who is the uh, the main um, uh, one of the one of the two main advocates of something called participatory economics. Uh, and uh, then the one after that is going to be a panel. Uh, at that point, uh, unless some hysterical liberal fantasy has come to pass, uh, Joe Biden should be president uh, in uh, in three weeks. And uh, that episode, so. Uh, for the beginning of the Biden presidency is going to be a foreign policy uh, panel. So it's going to be a panel on Biden and U.S. empire with uh, Daniel Bessner, uh, Katie Halper, and uh, Rania Kalik. Uh, so that's, that's going to round out uh, the month. Uh, also, uh, in between uh, these regular episodes, there's lots of other stuff going on. Uh, there is, uh, you know, there, as I mentioned earlier and played a little bit of it earlier, uh, there's the first if they give them more uh, patron bonus episodes, uh, Beginner's Guide to the Curtis Liberation Struggle with um, uh, Gene Bajalan, uh, which is dropping on uh, Thursday for uh, for patrons. We'll probably put a little teaser out on the podcast feed also. Uh, and uh, and then uh, there's going to be another one of those every Thursday, you know, from uh, from here on out. Uh, and also uh, on the if you have not, um, you know, even if you can't be a patron, even if you can't, you know, if you don't have the five bucks a month uh, to uh, to do that. Uh, other things you can do that really help us out are um, our rating and reviewing, you know, wherever you get podcasts, our uh, liking or subscribing on YouTube. And uh, while you're subscribing on YouTube, uh, you can uh, can check out all the uh, good stuff we're doing on YouTube in between episodes. Uh, so the main two things that we're doing in between episodes uh, are um, we are uh, we're dealing, we're doing, um, on Sundays, uh, there have been these Sunday night uh, debate breakdowns uh, where I have different guests on uh, and we watch and and, uh, and comment on uh, old debates that are available on YouTube. So we've done James Baldwin versus William F. Buckley on the civil rights movement. Uh, we've done the two debates that Christopher Hitchens had with his brother Peter, uh, who, by the way, is going to be a future guest on this show, uh, one on religion and one on the war in Iraq. Uh, we did the uh, Chomsky-Foucault debate. Uh, at some point, all these are going to be up on the podcast feed, by the way. It's just going to take a little while. Uh, and um, and we did a uh, one uh, from a couple of years ago this last Sunday with uh, my friend Ryan Lake uh, about um, there was a more philosophical one about free will and determinism and other subjects like that, uh, where we watched uh, the, uh, the, the three-pronged clown show 
of uh, Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris, and Eric Weinstein confusing themselves about those. And next weekend, uh, I don't know how there wasn't a video for that. I like. Yeah, yeah. It turned out it was just a it was just audio, but you know, yeah. still still a really fun episode, and uh, you know, of the or installment, I should say, you know, not episode of that uh, Sunday debate series. And this coming Sunday, uh, we are going to um, be um, yeah, no, should be should be a good time. Not sure exactly when that's happening, but I've been emailing with him. He wants to come on. It was uh, it was really funny that when he responded to you on Twitter and was like, "What do you think of the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah the debate with Christopher?" <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I mean, again, that's that's not a um, uh, you know not a comrade to put it mildly, but uh, yeah, but an interesting guy. Uh, you know, uh, Christopher Hitchens and his memoir Hitch Twenty uh, which I actually think is on the shelf behind me, uh, says about uh, Peter's book, uh, The uh, Broken Compass, that it contains assertions so reactionary that he uh, felt the need to wear a garlic necklace to read it. Uh, but so, but it, it would be. He did an interview with Owen Jones like a year or two ago, right? Um, at, at some point, I remember seeing that and being like, "All right." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, he actually did also do one with uh, our friend uh, uh, David Slavic and some British Corbinites uh, pretty recently. Um, and uh, speaking of David Slavic, uh, he and Gene Bajalon are going to be joining me this Sunday uh, to watch and break down Christopher Hitchens' uh, Iraq War debate with George Galloway, who. In that patron bonus episode I, I recorded yesterday with Gene, uh, he, uh, Gene said that uh, actually he slightly knew George Galloway back in this period and, and used to uh, argue with him uh, about uh, about some of this stuff. Uh, oh, thank you so much. That's awesome. Uh, and, um, of course, you know, I mean, obviously Gene didn't agree with the late Christopher Hitchens' awful foreign policy views, but, uh, you know, he also thought that uh, Galloway uh, wasn't, you know, striking quite the same balance between opposing the war, which you should, of course, but also, you know, being in solidarity with Iraqi Kurds and Iraqi communists and other oppressed people who are being, you know, uh, uh, who are being put down by that, you know, extremely uh, bloody and repressive right-wing dictatorship uh, from the Ba'ath Party. But, uh, but in any case, so that's coming up on Sunday. Also, the other thing besides the Sunday uh, debate breakdown live streams in the YouTube channel. We've also been doing, I've been doing with uh, Forrest here, uh, 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 Wednesday uh, movie review uh, live streams, which uh, which have been a lot of fun. Uh, the last one that we did, we, we took last week off because you know, it was the week between Christmas and New Year's, but uh, the last one we did before that was about Goodfellas uh, with um, uh, Jacob and Deputy Editor, uh, Mikey Utrecht, uh, and uh, and also uh, the other person who joined that for us for it was our friend uh, Daniel Bessner, who's been referred to several times on this episode, and who also, fun fact, grew up in the exact neighborhood from uh, from Goodfellas. Like a lot of the landmarks in the movie were were landmarks uh, from uh, from his childhood. Uh, and at uh, Bessner's suggestion, the four of us are going to be reconvening uh, day after tomorrow, this Wednesday. Uh, for a uh, follow-up to uh, that uh, that live stream, so it's it's like you know the the uh, the GTA Goodfellas uh, follow-up live stream about uh, the book Wise Guys. Are we doing that instead of uh, instead of Mean Streets this week? Oh, sorry, sorry, you're right, you're right. Uh, is that, is that yeah, yeah? Sorry, you're right. Wise Guys next week. Uh, they yeah. Uh, so yeah, next week we're doing Wise Guy, which is the uh, book that uh, Goodfellas was based on. This week, you're right. Uh, this Wednesday. We are talking about a previous Martin Scorsese uh, gangster movie. In fact, 
actually, I said on the last stream the other day, uh, Martin Scorsese's first gangster movie, Forrest uh, tells me, uh, in a sense, that's not quite right. Yeah, um, he has his uh, his NYU student film. Um, it's not just you, Mary, and it's I, I watched because I got the Criterion Collection for myself for like Christmas, and it's on there. It's 16 minutes. It's not. It's like the short. I, I don't. I don't. I don't even know how he can make a movie that short, considering everything else is like two plus hours. But yeah, it's uh, clearly a student film, but a very very good one. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So. Um... So yeah, I'll, um, uh, so that's right. So we are going to be, yeah, the Wise Guys one, uh, the uh, the Goodfellas follow-up stream is going to be next week. This week, day after tomorrow, uh, we are going to be uh, talking. Um, uh, so it's going to be me, Forrest, uh, and uh, friend Ryan Lake, uh, who we are going to be talking about uh, Scorsese's first full-length uh, gangster movie, Mean Streets, uh, which, is, uh, which is a really good movie. So if you want to... Uh, uh, if you want to do yourself a favor and uh, and watch that uh, before uh, before you watch the live stream, it'll be uh, it'll be time well spent. Yeah. All right. Uh, this has been uh, this has been really good. Really happy about how the uh, the first episode of uh, GTAA uh, uh, version 2.0 uh, went. You know, with the uh, the new live format. So this is going to be like this uh, every week uh, from uh, from here on out. So. Um, yeah, um, you know, thank you guys uh, so much for uh, for showing up and uh, and watching and asking super chat questions and you know, uh, and and uh, and you know, people who said they, they joined up as patrons this time and been really thrilled by how uh, fast all this has grown and uh, and I hope uh, hope everybody you know continues to uh, to stay with us uh, for uh, for the journey here. So uh, we had eleven eleven thousand, I think, the other like during this break. I'm pretty sure eleven thousand subs or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, YouTube subscriptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, not patrons, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that would be really, really. <laughs> good. We could you know all quit our day jobs, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we did hit. Uh, it is a little bit more than that now, but yeah, we did hit eleven thousand YouTube subscriptions uh, during uh, during the break. Uh, and we're uh, we're a little bit more uh, we're a little bit over that right now. So uh, so yeah, things are definitely trending uh, trending in the right direction, uh, and there is tons of good stuff coming up. So uh, so yeah, thank you everybody. Uh, we'll uh, see everybody uh, next week if uh, if not sooner. Left is best. <laughs>